Welcome back to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I am Cameron, and with me, as always, is Michael. Hi there. Michael, I've been reading a book. Damn, really? You? <laughs> you know, I don't want to brag, but I've been reading a book. <laughs> There's this choo-choo. <laughs> and he's trying to get up that hill and there's this guy named Gordon and he's also a choo-choo he's just a huge jerk about it <laughs> he keeps telling him he can't do it mm-hmm. I think he can <laughs> I think I'm combining two train based oh, I, <laughs> I was imagining Gordon Gecko, like mm. the little engineette could on Wall Street uh-huh. yeah uh-huh. I thought I was imagining Gordon Freeman <laughs> And he's got that crowbar and he's coming after him. You know what I mean? <laughs> Chasing the down ultimate the monorail. crossover. Yeah. Monorail. No, I've been reading this book called The Wild Crafting Brewer mm-hmm. by Pascal Baudar. Creating unique drinks and boozy concoctions from nature's ingredients. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm reading it and I'm thinking, am I gonna get botulism <laughs> by wild crafting with cactus pears I find in my yard? <laughs> My wife uh, recently has been making, oh God, what is it called? Um, Like pine soda or something? Is this Uh a thing that's in your book? Yeah, it is. Yes, okay. They don't call it pine soda, but but yeah. There's like using pine as as an agent in many types of sodas and brews. Yes. Now, so this is a thing that my wife has been trying out lately, and I have been having similar thoughts of when the botulism happens. Are you, uh, are they, are, is it a boozy concoction or is it just a soda? Uh, at this point, just a soda. Just trying to see if we can make like the, uh, like the flavored soda water. You're, you're getting, I, I mean, you're not in Appalachia, but you're, you're, uh, you know, you're one step away from pine liquor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, early Kyler style. But, uh, you know, I say that because we read a different book that's not about wildcrafting brewing. Uh huh. And and giving and or giving yourself botulism from <laughs> things in the yard. Okay. But that what that is. Oh, I'm looking for the key term. There's a bunch of them here. Is it a discourse community? What's this called? I I don't think it's a discourse community. Hold on. Let me find the word community. Let me see. A, nope. I don't know. Ah, uh, maybe I have a projective identity as someone who's a wild crafting brewer. Yes, I think that's it. Yeah. There there's a design grammar to uh-huh. the very notion of wild crafting. <laughs> You've got a cultural model that booze uh, is stuff that doesn't give you botulism, but you're that's setting out right. to prove that wrong. That's right. I got a cultural model. And you know what? It all comes down to technologies are not good or bad. They just have effects. You know, it's just how you use them. Mm -hmm. So if I give you something that gives you botulism, who could say if it's good or bad? (laughs) I'm goofing. I'm trying to use the key terms of the book in some other way other than they're supposed to be done. It's not about, it's about literacy, but theoretically mm-hmm. it should be applied everywhere. We're, th- this episode, it's about James Paul G's book, 
what video games have to teach us about learning and literacy. Uh, I got the revised and updated edition. Did, did you, what version of this did you read? Uh, no, I just have the regular old first edition. So what's, uh, I, I was thinking that there was a revised and updated one, but I couldn't remember. What's different about it? So when was yours uh, published? Uh, 2003. Okay, so this is, this is a revised in 2007, it looks like. Okay. The only thing I can tell, I mean, maybe we'll like run into some stuff here, but the only thing I can really tell where uh, G talks about, you know, what, what, is, what is different is in the conclusion, which I didn't really take any notes on because it's just a conclusion. Uh -huh. But uh, this is what he says in the conclusion. Since what video games have to teach us about learning and literacy appeared in 2003, much has happened to the field and to me. Having given now a great many talks about video games around the world, I know that many people who have read this book take it to be an argument for using games in schools or other educational mm -hmm. settings. Mm -hmm. However, that is not the argument I've tried to make in this book. I first wanted to argue that good video games build into their very designs good learning principles, and that we should use these principles with or without games in schools, workplaces, and other learning sites. Second, I've wanted to argue that young people are interacting with video games and other popular cultural practices they are learning, and learning in deep ways. Through good game design, we can leverage deeper and deeper learning as a form of pleasure in people's everyday lives without any hint of school or schooling. Now, beyond these two points, I've meant to argue that one way, not the only way, to deliver good learning in schools and workplaces would indeed be via games or game-like technologies, though we have to be careful not to co-opt young people's cultures for our own purposes. We need to make them full and productive partners in how we design any enterprise in which we use games for learning. Uh, and then, furthermore, the argument in this book is not that what people are learning when they are playing video games is always good. Rather... Mm -hmm. What they are doing when they are playing good video games is often good learning. We can learn evil things as easily as we can learn moral ones. <laughs> to make good learning moral learning requires that learners are participating in a moral community. And that requires looking beyond games and software. Real learning comes from the social and interactional systems within which a powerful technology like video games is placed, not from the game all by itself. So that's, that's the beginning to the conclusion, and that really is the most substantive. I mean, the conclusion is five pages or so, and mm -hmm. it has a little bit more engagement with the rest of the book, but that kind of is you know, good to read here at the top because I, that's one of the few places where it actually talks about the revisedness of the book. Mm -hmm. And the uh, other thing is that's a pretty good setup to talk about the book, I think. Because yeah. it's, uh, it's a book about learning, and how learning works, and how video games intersect with learning. Mm -hmm. And it and ostensibly it is not anything other than that. Now I think that G is being a little, uh, I I not uh not duplicitous, but that's not exactly the what I just read is not exactly what I would say is happening in the book. Personally, having read the book. Mm -hmm. uh, meaning that I think there are lots of assertions and assumptions about what, what is good and what happens when you're playing a game and if things are good, um, that there's no explicit kind of real discussion about uh, morality or moral communities in the previous seven chapters, but there's a lot of implied ideas about what's embedded in a video game there. Mm -hmm. um, so so I, I think that there, Gia is maybe warping the book a little bit in that. Uh, conclusion, but we'll talk about that when we get there. But but that is the, uh, generally the goals of the book. Hey, mm -hmm. what's happening? What's learning? What is learning? Big question. And then what happens with learning when you play a video game? Yes. This book's a big deal. 
Yeah, it is. I, I told you before we started recording, like days ago when we were reading, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I told you before yeah. we started recording at a different time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, many days ago. That I think it was reading this book was like really critical for a lot of things coming together for me in grad school because uh, up until a certain point in grad school, I had kind of these weirdly uh, divided interests, which was on the one hand, uh, my early modernist Shakespeare uh, history of humanism as an intellectual project uh, kind of thing. Uh, that that was one thing that I was doing. That was ostensibly what I was doing in grad school. Uh, but then the other thing that I was doing is I was like hanging out on Twitter, uh, reading a bunch of games critics and like reading a bunch of game studies books on my own time. And then eventually like making my own twine games and things like that. Uh, and there was a point in uh, grad school where I was in a practicum course that was all about digital rhetoric. And we read excerpts from this book uh, and this was the moment where I realized like, oh, the whole intellectual history of humanism thing that I'm doing in, in the early modernist space actually connects quite directly to stuff that is being said about video games right now, because um, I'll probably talk about it uh, off and on throughout the episode. But there's there's a lot of parts of this book that really remind me of uh uh, a schoolmaster in the early 1600s writing a big old treatise explaining why it's really cool that we have textbooks with illustrations in them now. Some sort of ignorant schoolmaster? No, unfortunately not. A highly educated schoolmaster. Yes, no, that is specifically the argument that Houle makes. It's Charles Houle that I'm thinking of, and he's like, yeah, uh, uh, pictures help our students because our students aren't smart enough to know what we're talking about if they don't have pictures. Brutal. I mean, it's not really that they're not smart enough, right? But it's like it helps them. Yeah, own through time. (laughs) Can you imagine, uh, you, you know, you never make an impact in the world. You know, you're just, you just go become like, you know, some rural French farmer, mm-hmm. you know, the most educated French farmer in the area, but you're just some guy, you're making rutabagas, you know what I mean, for the next 40 years of your life. And the treatise that your teacher wrote about how dumb you are <laughs> echoes through time, and, and a young Michael Lutz reads it and thinks, this is just like video games. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, That's interesting. I don't have any context for that. I, I do think it's funny that we have... Uh, you know, I think a constant thing on Range Touch products is, uh, you know, here's a here's an idea. Isn't it interesting how this also happened in the 1700s? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like when uh, people, I was, you know, on Twitter the other day, I saw someone sharing like uh, pictures of socks from like ancient Persia. Mm-hmm. Did you see this tweet? I did not. No, they had like a little sheep on them. <laughs> They're like knitted socks. <laughs> And it's like, yeah, I get it. Yeah. I want that now. Mm -hmm. They had it figured out. Uh, But uh, yeah, you know, I've read this book. I've read this book. uh, I don't know cover to cover ever, you know, like in in a a single sitting, but I've read in aggregate the whole book a couple times. Uh, I've read it for my book. And maybe in my book, I should have engaged with a little bit more. I did think about this while I was doing it. I mean, I, I... I'm citing parts of it and talking about it kind of in pieces. Uh, in my book, The World is Born from Zero, but uh, not not super heavily. And uh, that's probably good because I think that if I'd really sat with it and really like kind of done a close read of James Paul G., I would have fought with like 
every other chapter here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because, that's not to say I have a, a negative uh, feeling about this book, really. I, I mean, this book is uh, a classic in-game studies. Mm-hmm. You know, that, like you just said, if if you take anything kind of in the DH universe, or maybe not now, I don't know, but certainly when we were in graduate school, this was still, even though you know I was in graduate school, still 10 years after this book came out, uh, it still you know is taught and talked about, and James Paul G shows up very regularly in game studies mm-hmm. um, in terms of someone who is talking about what's up when you play a video game and, and how you do that. You know, I would say that um, James Paul G stands up beside some of the some of those earlier uh, big disciplinary moves in in video game studies, um, and kind of contrasts or is in tandem with Ian Bogos' work, I would say the mm-hmm, most. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's this question, and Miguel Sicart as well, um, because there's this question within a certain sector of game studies, um, and we'll talk about why this is a major question, I guess, in a minute. But um, of what do games have us do? Like when you when you play a game, what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know what 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 are the designed uh, pieces or impetuses or desires or notions that games have that push you down a particular kind of interactive path? You know this is something where we've read kind of the the next generation of this work in Ready Player Two, uh, Shira Chess's book. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Shira Chess's book is engaging with some of these ideas from kind of the first major wave of game studies or disciplinary game studies from the early 2000s and then takes some of that work and interacts with, um, uh, uh, you know, developer interviews and a, a kind of a slightly different um, uh, uh, citational apparatus to to make some arguments about it. Um, and, uh, but yeah, in, in a big broad sense, right? Like I, I find this book fascinating, but also fascinating frustrating in some of its assumptions and assertions. My, I have similar feelings with this book as I do with Playing With Feelings, the Aubrey Animal book, where I there are, you know, the kind of push of the book, the idea of the book, the concept of the book, what, what the book is going after, I'm largely in agreement with, right? It's But it's the mechanisms or the descriptions here or the forms of reading that I have a lot of friction with. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some of that has to do with the kind of normative statements that get made in it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute. Um, and some of it has to do with, I'll just be honest, the citation apparatus, yeah. which I find very frustrating. Do, do, do you want to talk about that? The, the way that this, I don't know if it stuck out to you as much. It, I'm happy to talk about it too. It did stick out to me because it raises for me the question of like, how do you end up in a position where you can do this? Uh, citations for this book, rather than being scattered throughout parenthetically, uh, are given at the end of every every chapter, and they're not listed as citations. This is crucial. It's not like, oh, you just get to the end and then there's a work cited. No, the, the citations uh, come as kind of a uh, little terminal subchapter for every chapter where G just like talks through all of the people who he thinks are relevant to the things he just said. Yeah, so so the way it functions, it's it's without the thing in front of you, it's even hard to kind of like get that because you're right. It's this like little segment at the end, and it'll be like um, it's called the they're called bibliographical notes, and so uh, you know chapter six is called cultural models, and the bibliographical note. This is the whole thing. Uh, I'll just read it to give you a sense. So this is this is in a paragraph. This is a straight up paragraph of text. 
Major sources in the literature on cultural models include DeAndre 95, DeAndre and Strauss 92, G 2005, Holland, Lachiode, Skinner, and Kane 98, Holland and Quinn 87, Shore 96, and Strauss and Quinn 97. The example from the high school physics class comes from Hammer 1996. From the relationships between everyday ways of understanding the world and scientific ways and how to bridge between them, see Decessa 2000, Hammer 96, and Menstrual 2000. And it's like, there are claims that are made about, like, what the human is, uh-huh. how human society functions, uh, what the normative, like, like I talked about earlier in reading the conclusion. There are a lot of statements in this book about good games, right? Like, mm-hmm. unqualified, that, that word, good. Good and bad games. And uh, the citations to that, you, good luck. I mean, really, truly, at the end of the, uh, of the chapter, if you're like, well, I really wonder about these ideas that are being cited here. You just, you, on your own time, undirected, you better figure out one of these 15 citations at the end and go digging. Happy hunting, buddy. Uh, and I, I, just, I just feel like that is such a... Uh, I, citations are annoying. Let me. I want to put it this way. <laughs> Citations are annoying, right? All they of do, branch as G, citation haters out there. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, look, they're annoying. G is right because at the beginning, uh, G says, hey, I don't want to have traditional citations because it kind of breaks up the flow of reading. That's absolutely true. No question in my mind. Uh, this is why Chicago style uh, reigns supreme, right? Just get that little number and check on it later. But if you provide claims in a big bundle at the end without flagging where they are, in the text, it becomes very difficult to check someone's work in terms of what are the things and assumptions and ideas and other people's ideas that they are depending on to build the, you know, the little structure, the little, the little, uh, you know, building that is the book. And sometimes that matters. That matters a whole lot. You know, I've, I've been very critical of some authors in the past, I, I, not not to pick on anyone in particular, but I've written on this before, so I, I feel like, okay, saying it. Um, Jane McGonigal's citation apparatus is really good. You know, she, she is excellent at citing claims. I do not always feel like, having checked the citations for several claims in Jane McGonigal's books, I don't feel like I would have come to the same conclusion that she did about the things she is citing. You know, she'll mm-hmm. often cite studies or she'll cite ideas. Um, and then you go and look at the citation, and I don't often feel like I would have read that study or the output or the ideas there in the same way. You know, I've written about this before. Um, and that has to do with the genre of the popular press book and the popular nonfiction book and the way that those work. You know, there's a lot of genre conceits there that I'm uh, that I fully understand. I think if you read those books, you need to understand that, too. I, those books are not geared toward uh, hardcore academic argument. You know, mm-hmm. Cit- citation has a rhetorical form there. But I, but this book is maybe geared toward that group, right? But it has the most resonance, certainly, with academics and is foundational to the field of game studies. And I find it really hard to check the work here. It, and and when you start making claims about what people do and how people work and how games work and what they actually do to people, that either needs to be in a theoretical mode, which is based on all these assumptions I have about the world that I've flagged and the philosophical apparatus that I have developed for you. This is therefore what I think based on historical precedent, other studies, whatever. You know, that's one way of doing that. You know, a, a, a normative statement based on abstraction. And then the other side is 
there's a lot of studies that I have uh, that I'm engaging with, and here's what they are, so you can go and check my work and check the kind of assumptions I have made based on the assumptions of other people. Mm-hmm. And, and this doesn't give you the tools to really do either of those things. Um, and so, in some ways, I just would rather it just be a philosophical text with no citations because it is very, very difficult um, to 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 go and chase up the citations to come to your own conclusions about whether or not you think uh, G is accurately representing the thing, you know, that is being cited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's overall a uh, just strange book uh, compared to a lot of stuff we've covered on this show for all the reasons you've just said, and also kind of its general rhetorical mode, even, I would say. Yeah. Like, uh, it cannot be oversold how critically influenced this book specifically is by being released in 2003, admit the kind of height of violent video game, uh, uh, like, debates and panic of that specific era. Right. Uh, well, I think maybe even to talk about that, because I, <laughs> I do think that just takes us into the book, right? Yeah. Do, do you want to uh, say anything about James Paul G? Because where this book comes out in his career, I'm given to understand, is also maybe important for this. Yes, I think so. So uh, G is a, uh, by training, um, he has a background in philosophy, but he becomes a theoretical linguist. He moves on into different types of uh, linguistic study. I, uh, one thing I see him associated a lot uh, with is like psycholinguistics. Uh, from this, he branches out into literacy studies throughout the course of his career, and he is one of the foundational figures in developing the... Uh, like method or subdiscipline of discourse analysis, uh, which is a kind of uh, sort of social science inflected uh, way of talking about, well, discourse, right? Uh, things people say or do in sort of uh, transcriptions of those things. And uh, particularly with regard to uh, like the formation of communities, uh, languages, and how like, you know, languages have communities, how they talk to and about each other and about certain issues. All of that happens. Uh, in the early 2000s, he is at he he's been at a couple of places all throughout his career up until this point, and then in the early 2000s, he's at U Wisconsin Madison, uh, and that's when he releases this book, and he talks about sort of the the impetus for writing it, uh, which is that he has a young son now. Um, he's an older man, uh, but he's had a a, a son late in life, uh, so he has a six year old boy who likes to play video games. And he is pretty upfront about this in the the opening chapters that he basically was like, you know, doing one of two things. He would either watch his son play video games or he would like play video games with his son, like help him. Uh, And the thing that was striking to him was that uh, his kid was extremely good at figuring out video games when they were often very baffling to him personally. Uh, and so this starts him on a, a trajectory of thinking, uh, how do video games teach you how to play them? Uh, and from that, uh, can we derive kind of learning principles, uh, like things to keep in mind for when we are teaching or for when we have people that we hope are learning? Can we look at video games and find the ways that they teach you how to play them or like teach you how to do the things that you do in video games? And can we derive from those things uh, models for classroom experiences or uh, any other type of learning experience that you you might want to think of? And that's kind of what the entire book is about, is looking at video games 
which are, as G kind of constantly frames them, uh, fraught, right? Uh, uh, Mm -hmm. They're uh, things that people don't think have any cultural value. They have no content. This is a thing we'll we'll probably talk about. This is like a criticism that he hears about video games. They have no content. Um, uh, they are, you know, predominantly violent or whatever, like the violent video games debate again is just like raging in the background and, uh, G is constantly kind of trying to, uh, anticipate a reader who is mostly aware of video games through the video game violence discussion and quell some of their anxieties. So that hap- that's a move that happens again and again, uh, mm-hmm. But uh, through all that, uh, it's kind of just like G walking through games, explaining to people, here is how a game works. Here are the ways that the game teaches things. Uh, Here are some ideas that I think we can extrapolate out from that into the classroom or into other kind of learning environments or that we can um, abstract into kind of uh, tendencies or principles of learning generally. and the the ultimate takeaway being that uh, you know games don't have to be bad. They don't have to be, be violent. There, there. In fact, there could be a use for games. That's the other uh, kind of rhetorical angle here is uh, arguing for the usefulness of games. Ultimately, not not even just the usefulness, but the that an assumption and assertion that once games go along far enough, and again, this is two thousand three. Mm-hmm. It's once games go along far enough, they won't be violent anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what? I mean, that is expressly said late in the book, right? Mm-hmm. Like the medium is going uh, to mature. It will mature, and it'll be other things. And specifically, citing Siberia, uh, the the game Siberia, and it's like, well, by two thousand three, we've already seen that like mm-hmm. a lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Mist was one of the best selling games on the planet. Um, and so I do think that there's a uh, in that rhetorical form that, that we're talking about, the kind of what the, what the book's after and how it makes its argument, it, it doesn't quite... Um, its selection of examples really leads you down a path of if you don't know things about games, you might come... You might have an impression that they exist in one particular way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That, like, it's all action and violence and whatever, and there are these weird aberrations that come out. Right. And like those weird aberrations are interesting, too. But most of the games that, you know, that he writes about here, Deus Ex, Tomb Raider, uh, what are some uh, Ar- EverQuest? Arcanum. Arcanum. Yeah. <laughs> A game that does not get written about very nope. often. Uh, Sonic Adventure 2 <laughs> Battle. <laughs> yes. Pikmin. Um, the, you know, these games are they're action games. You know, they're popular action games. And what's interesting, I guess, is that. Uh, I would say that coming out of the 90s, video games are, popular video games are as diverse as they can be, or as they will get for a while. You know, I think actually after this point, they narrow quite a bit in terms of what's popular and profitable. And then now I think we're back at a pretty expansive mm-hmm. field of what games are. But at the time when he's writing this, it's actually kind of narrowed. Yeah, he, he um, references a lot of uh, 90s adventure games, which are at, at the very moment that this thing is published, like it's a genre that's basically going extinct. Right. Right. So, yeah, I don't I would say largely and there's going to be a few places where we flag this. But what is missing from this book for me is any kind of historical reckoning. 
mm-hmm. which is that if if like discourse communities, that's not really a word he's using, but in in a broad sense, right? If discourse communities exist, they are historical and they exist in time and space, mm-hmm. um, and they they exist within a context. And he loves to talk about that. He's really good at bringing us back to context. But context is history to me, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, history is the progression of. Uh, you know, not a progression towards some endpoint, but a progression of material running into one another, right? Mm-hmm. Things come out of stuff that smash into each other. And I don't, I, I find it very difficult to talk about literacy or cultural understanding or uh, cultural hegemonic practices, right? Or the way that cultures run into each other and kind of dominate and subordinate each other. That's what, what we mean by hegemony here. Uh, it's hard for me to talk about that without talking about a historical progression of stuff, right? Like, things occurred, mm-hmm. and there were uh, moments in history in which one idea won over another idea and determined what language might be or how we can think about things. And he's kind of uh, interested in that at some points, but he's also very uninterested at it, I would say, at the meta level, which is like, at the level of competing discourses, uh, why are things the way they are? And he, he's not, I mean, because it's not a history book, right? Mm-hmm. He's not interested in that. Um, but I do th- find it kind of missing mm-hmm. here, um, I, you know. But again, to talk about the rhetorical form, maybe, before we start talking about book proper, uh, this is not this this is not aimed at you and me. No. It's not a book for us. <laughs> who Who is this book for, Michael? Uh, for people who are, I think, maybe skeptical about video games. But who specifically? He calls out a very particular group. Oh, I missed this. The boomers. Oh, oh shit. That's right. I forget that <laughs> that is that is actually part of the, the rhetorical thing. He's con- now you may be thinking that you have to apply baby boomer logic here. And <laughs> and we all know what baby boomer logic is. And I'm sitting here reading this and I'm like, I really don't. I think you might have to unpack this for me. Uh but instead we just like barrel forth. Yeah, we're not exaggerating in any kind of way. Many times in this book, he'll be like, a common baby boomer might think, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And you got to get out of your boomer logic, boomers, fellow boomers. Like, that's happening constantly throughout the book. It really is aimed at, uh, you know, people who were born before video games really came into prominence. Mm -hmm. Um, Gen X isn't mentioned a single time. Mm -hmm. God forbid a millennial read this book. (laughs) Zoomers, get the hell out of here. Yeah. You're one letter too wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, wait, hold on. I need to do the math here. Is is G's son a Zoomer? Yeah. Uh, no, not a Zoomer. It would be a, 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 um, a, late millennial. a, a tiny millennial. Yeah. A late millennial. I couldn't come up with, yeah. the, with the word. Yeah, late millennial. Okay. So, yeah, the Zoomers aren't even twinkles in eyes yet. Uh, but yeah, no, the Cameron is absolutely right that like we are not uh, exaggerating like that is explicitly stated in the text multiple times, just sort of asserted you need to get out of your baby boomer way of thinking about this and instead get with the the times, the video game times, except I don't have the greatest sense of what uh, the baby boomer mindset is. Uh, G kind of presents it as a thing that's fairly obvious and, and unitary and coherent. Uh I I am skeptical of that, but also I, I, I wouldn't know because we don't really dig into any of it. Yeah, I think that that baby boomer logic in big quotations, right? The way it gets evoked here is a uh, it, broadly. It's the idea that 
one can kind of step into a marketplace of normalized values and that the things that are valorized and like mainstream American culture are the only things that matter. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like, therefore, video games don't because they're like toys for children or whatever. Nothing real happens. So that's like a part of baby mover logic. The other one is, I think, a rigidification of the education to workplace system. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you go to school, you go to high school, you... Maybe if you're lucky, you go to college, you learn a particular kind of set of values, and then you go on to apply your trade you mm-hmm. know, whatever. You, you, you get your CPA license, you go be a CPA, um, you know, and, and uh, what, is the, what is the term that gets used here? Drill and... Uh, skill and drill. Skill and drill, yeah. I knew, I knew something here. So the idea that, you know, you memorize the times tables, and then you go on and take tests on the timetable, the times tables, or you memorize all your historical facts, and you go on, and you take your multiple choice cl- test, and you get a 100, and based on all those 100s, you go get your PhD in literature and uh, learn how to tell other people how to pass multiple choice tests, right? Mm-hmm. There's a baby boomer logic stands in for an ossification of learning and the way of evaluating the relationship between learning and the the workforce i think yeah uh, but again but you're right it's it's pretty unclear like i am i am uh, uh, backfilling what that might be based <laughs> on examples used you know what i mean i don't really know what that means right it's there's like the one of the clearest moments of this is later on where he's talking about how often when a a kid is playing a new video game they won't look at the manual they'll just like you know turn on the video game and start futzing around with it and figure out the controls that way and he's like now you baby boomers might think that they wanted to that they should read the manual but you got to get out of that baby boomer habit of always reading the manual and i just remember thinking like have you met my dad like (laughs) my dad's technically a baby boomer and the man has never looked at a manual like (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing is that maybe this is the other general statement to say because it matters for every chapter. Um, this is this is a book that is so committed. I mean, I I appreciate actually in in a broad sense, I appreciate that constantly he is flagging who this book is written for, mm-hmm. uh, and especially because this is a book that is structural to game studies. You know, it, even if your individual work in game studies doesn't pass through it. I promise you that your work passes through someone's work that's in conversation with this book. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just so big in terms of the ways that people have engaged with it positively, negatively, through criticism, through adoption, all that kind of stuff, right? Like, G is just a cornerstone of, you know, the classics of game studies. However you feel about it, I think that's that's true. I think that G is probably, in terms of uh, what the impact of this book was like is probably just as influential as Kawa or Herzinga, just in terms of mm-hmm. of uh, reach, that kind of stuff. After this book came out, uh, for multiple years, G was supported by a MacArthur Foundation grant. Yeah, his research was. I don't know what the exact qualities of that are. There's some some videos of it online. He's got it, he, and he has it also on his CV, right? But you know. This came out, and then large institutions looked at it and said, "All right, there's something here. Let's kind of pursue it." Yeah, uh, um, you know, along those lines, uh, I mentioned that I encountered this in grad school in this practicum, uh, and I can say 
I don't know exactly how the lay of the land looks now, but when I was in grad school, this book was extremely successful at its mission of justifying the ways of video games to people who don't know anything about video games. It was like this and Bogost were the two things that you could really leverage to get someone like an older academic, perhaps, who was skeptical of video games uh, to entertain the possibility that there was something here to be studied. Yeah, it's overwhelmingly successful. I think that G is a really good communicator. Mm-hmm. Uh, but alongside of that, it, the the parallel thought that I had while reading this book, you know, one thought being, "Wow, this is doing a really good job of of taking something of speaking to a skeptic." You know, mm-hmm. and that's entirely what it is, and it's really speaking to a, a skeptic who is in a particular age group. Mm-hmm. You know, I, that that really is uh, the. The now get rid of your boomer logic. That's not just like uh, a command, right? You know, that is an appeal to community. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, G is saying, hey, we're in the same community, you know, age group wise. I thought that video games were silly beforehand. Now I know they're not silly. Here are the reasons why I think that you might think that too. I mean, it, rhetorically, it's a really great move. Um, and look, if you're trying to. Uh, uh, move the wheels of power in the early 2000s and even now, unfortunately, right, 20 years later. Uh, baby boomers are the people you have to talk to. Mm-hmm. Uh, baby boomers were the people giving out MacArthur Foundation grants, right? right. You know, it's not it's not some wily Gen Xer at the top of that thing. So, so you know, there's a, a pragmatic reason for all of that to to really move the wheels in terms of of what um, how video games are taken seriously. But the other thing that's so interesting to me about it, and I, I think probably the biggest mainline criticism I would have, that, that's kind of nebulous. It's everywhere in the book. There's nowhere I don't I don't think I can point to it anywhere in the book and say, here's where I feel this way uh, exclusively. You know, it, it permeates it. It's that G spends so much time in this book trying, uh, not trying, saying, within communities, XYZ is true. Mm-hmm. And we need tools to talk about what's happening in that community. Great. So on one hand, I, I this is the early 2000s. I keep thinking, where's cultural studies? Mm-hmm. As I always do. And there's a little bit of that kind of stuff, but it's very much a different tradition. Uh, and it's very much that tradition coming out of linguistics and educational theory, mm-hmm. not cultural studies proper, you know, English cultural studies, which um, takes a similar approach, but notably is much more Marxist and is much more interested in questions of race, gender, ability, things like that, mm-hmm. right? Um, these kind of uh, demarcators of inclusion within the world, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, where are inclusions made, where are exclusions made? Cultural studies is very attentive to that. Um, you know, where where are class markers and how do they happen? Mm-hmm. Um, broadly, because of the, the kind of linguistic way and the uh, really close attention to the object itself that G has, a lot of those broader methods are just not brought into play here. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that could be pragmatic. If you're talking to American baby boomers about video games, bringing up Marxism might not help you. Then. <laughs> I, so I get it. Even though it, there is a very funny citation of Marx here where Marx uh, compliments capitalism. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> I, did, I did notice that, yep. which is very funny. Um, but so I can understand maybe why that doesn't happen, right? That, that's a tactical choice. Okay. But I, but what I find fascinating is that that all that stuff is occurring in this book about being so clear about what communities do and how they do it. And at the same time, G sneaks in all kinds of norms uh, mm-hmm. that are so uh, particularly community-based, right, that, that are about what are the desires of a, 
educated bourgeois academic who has a lot of free time. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, cause that's what this book is about. This book is about, um, what is the, when, when the middle class has leisure time, are they using it properly? Mm. I truly, let's get into it, but I truly don't know what makes a game good or bad other than James Paul G says it aligns with the literature on learning or it doesn't. Uh, I, we can talk about this uh, more specifically later because I think you get at it really well. Uh, but just to underscore something that you said that like, yes, uh, good and bad games are labels that recur here and they recur without really any explanation that there is a constant assertion by G that uh, here is something that a that good games do and then describes something some game does, uh, but doesn't really get into like why that makes the game good or like mm -hmm. what good even means it more just uh points to uh g is able to excavate from the game some principle that can be uh applied both in games but also like in the classroom more or less right that like the yeah the, a game that tutorializes well is a good game um but so is a game that lets you role play well or like makes you feel like you role play well, right? If it produces some sort of experience for James Paul G that uh, G seems to have liked, then it's a good game. And G likes a lot of games, seems interested in Deus Ex and Pikmin, uh, uh, you know, Arcanum, uh, just it, it's maybe the let's talk about like one of the highlights of this book is just mm -hmm. like this guy's thoughts on a truly incredible assortment of games. Yeah, guy played a lot of games. Like you can't say he didn't put the work. <laughs> like him, him explaining like his experience uh, playing Return to Castle Wolfenstein <laughs> <laughs> and cheesing boss yes, enemies. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I think that's an important. I'm glad you're bringing that up. I think that's an important thing uh, to talk about here, or to at least think about. This book is positioned and rhetorically positions itself as a book about the relationship between learning and video games. Mm -hmm. What if that's not what this book is? Mm -hmm. What if this book is just a lesson in how to close read video games? This is a thought that I had, yes. Uh, because I don't, like, the system of learning and literacy and the citational apparatus that he has is so external, right? You know, it, none of the stuff or very little of the stuff that he is citing or talking about has anything to do with video games. Mm -hmm. It just has to do with broader systems of la language acquisition learning, science education for some reason. He's really into yeah. that. I think he had a professional connection to that. Um, semiotics, all these kinds of mm -hmm. things. And then he close reads whatever game he's playing in order to demonstrate how in that game these things mm -hmm. occur. Right. Ludology who? Narratology who? <laughs> right? right? Not even here. <laughs> no, none of that is here, right? Um, and, which is fine. That's not a complaint. Mm -hmm. right? Neither of us are saying that as a complaint. Um but it, but it is notable, right, that that w the the purpose of this book is not um, uh, to fitting into academic debates about games, mm -hmm. right? The the thing the the point of the book is here is a big system that you might not be aware of that that tells us a lot about language learning, uh, uh, knowledge acquisition, all this kind of stuff that's kind of processed through semiotics and discourse analysis. Uh, those things can be found in video games. So then, therefore, 
the good outcomes of those things, this big system that we know about, the good outcomes can happen. Mm -hmm. And so really, like, the work of the book is finding those things in the video games. And look, I'm a broken record on this every single day, right? (laughs) But you can apply a system to anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Any given system. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to Homestuck Made This World, a yeah. small podcast uh, within Game Studies Study Bodies for the set. But you can check out our other, you know, show where we talk about this a lot. But you can take any model and apply it to anything. It's about the outputs that come from that that really matter. It's not about uh, the the inherent, you know, value of the thing you applied it to. Mm-hmm. Right? You can find anything anywhere if you look hard enough. Right. Um. And and what's interesting is the the real work here is extracting these principles from Deus Ex. Mm-hmm. Um, when you could extract these principles if you if you worked hard enough from anything. Um, and so what is the quality of the principles that come out? And I think that's where the talent of, of G comes out, is that he does a really good job of reading Deus Ex, or does a really good job of reading the Blue Sonic or the Dark Sonic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know I, think, I think he's a very extremely talented writer, because mm-hmm. um, the book works. Uh, but but it is these meta level discussions, and look, I'm just being a good learner here, Michael. Uh, we, I guess we can talk about that. Yeah, uh, you know, we can dive into the book now because one of the things of good learning, big quotation marks, good learning is a meta level discussion. Mm-hmm. And so, look, if you if if you're hearing us talk about this, and you say, "Look, how dare you criticize James Paul G? How dare you criticize a book you kind of like? How dare you do that?" <laughs> I'm just saying, look, I'm at level four. Of learning, right? Okay, mm-hmm. I'm at the meta level, the meta discursive level. I'm here, okay. Mm-hmm. So don't don't judge me, yeah, listener. Uh, so yeah, holiday listener. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the book, uh, we actually kind of already talked through like the first chapter, which is the introduction. Uh, the there might be more that you want to talk about there, Cameron, but I think the other core idea that needs to be teased out just so you know, like, where the rest of this book is going and how it's thinking. Uh, Literacy is in the title, and we've talked Mm -hmm. only sort of obliquely about learning literacy up until this point. Uh, We need to understand what literacy means for G, Uh, and it's not just how to read and write. Like, that's obviously one form of literacy, but uh, G's theory, G is part of a, a, a you know, uh, a cohort or a base of uh, linguistic theorists and uh, literacy theorists who see literacy as a thing uh, that happens basically in all realms of life, that uh, you you learn to read social situations. You learn to read uh your workspace, like what do you do at your job? How do you interact with your coworkers, with your with your superiors, with uh, uh, clients you may be working with, whatever it is that you're doing? You learn to read those things. You learn to read how to comport yourself in public space. Uh, what does your dress say about you? What sort of affiliations or identities does it apply? So on and so forth. Um, so uh, literacy for G is like this vast, uh, uh, well, Literacy itself is not vast, right? Uh, Culture is vast, and you can become literate in different types or different aspects of culture and the world. So literacy is not, uh, narrowly speaking, just language, uh, learning, reading, and writing. Um, It's all types of kind of signs, codes, uh, things that are taken for meaning in day-to-day interaction. So this Mm -hmm. leads into then... uh, Chapter two, semiotic domains, uh, which is basic. The, the semiotic domain 
uh, is G's term for like the uh, realms in which certain signs are going to have particular types of meaning. The uh, before we jump into chapter two, there yeah, there are two things from chapter one that I do want to point out that that are um, structural to the book, mm-hmm. right? Because chapter one is the introduction, so it's telling us the stakes of what's going on in in the the piece. And uh, there, there are a few things here that are assertions and assumptions that are important to hold on to, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, weirdly enough, I think this book is, it's almost like the grasshopper in some ways, mm-hmm. right? Where, mm-hmm. uh, like, in a, you know, in a general sense, where it has statements that are foundational to the book. And if you do not agree with those statements, you might not agree with most of the book. Mm-hmm. You know, it, like, it kind of an if-then scenario, right? Sometimes, you know, if you read something like... Um, Oh, gosh, what is Carly Kasurik's ti- Coin-Operated mm-hmm. Americans? I just couldn't come up with the title. Uh, you know, uh, Carly Kasurik's Coin-Operated Americans, I think, does a really good job of melding cultural criticism with the history work. You know, you can listen to our episode on that, which uh, by which I mean, you know, you can have this moment of, uh, of maybe disagreement if you do with that book of, of a, a given thing. But there's a lot of historical context to make you understand how Kasurik might come to that claim, you know, mm-hmm. or, or um, Communities of Play. Is that the Pierce book? Um, yes. I, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time with titles this morning, right? You know, if you don't agree with the analysis, that's okay, because, there, you know, you kind of get this daisy chain of logic that gets you to why they, they think that, right? Uh, and there's all this historical context to it. But this book, also due to the citation style we talked about before, it's just got some claims in it that you need to buy in order to continue buying the thing, and there's not a lot of explanation as to why those claims are there. You can go do the reading on your own if you can find out what thing it's cited from. Mm-hmm. You, you can hear my frusta- frustration here, right? Uh, I, I don't know. Am I in like the, the 5% of people who like actually go and look at the bibliography or like the citations? Mm-hmm. Um, I bury a lot of things in footnotes in my book. Hopefully people are looking at that stuff. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I'm Foster Wallace over here. <laughs> uh, two, there is a value based in completing a game because G calls completing a game, winning a game. Any game. Mm-hmm. Completing the game is winning it. If you complete Arcanum, you're winning the game. Okay. Now, that's interesting. That's not really how I think about games. Uh, and ob- like, There's a time difference. There's an age difference, whatever, right? But, like, to me, the completion of a game uh, might be value neutral. And that probably has a lot to do with the fact that I, you know, for pay, I've had to grind out hundreds, no, thousands of hours at this point of games that I might not have even wanted to play in order to complete them, right? Mm-hmm. So I, you know, this is maybe a personal thing, but that's the thing that's worth thinking about. Is 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 finishing Mass Effect, is that winning mm-hmm. Mass Effect? I don't know. You know, there's a value to the word winning there. Uh, this is on page six. Quote, you cannot read or think outside of any group whatsoever. You know, there's another word that we use for this sometimes. From another lineage of thought comes up on the show all the time. Ideology. Mm-hmm. Right? An imaginary relation to real relations, as as Althusser might tell us, right? Uh, he's not using the word ideology. No, he's using kind of group, uh, you know, thought, mm-hmm. right? The idea that you live within this kind of semiotic domain that's community focused, things like that. But I would say outcome wise, very similar. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's no meta discourse. There's no way to truly get out of a, a potential way of thinking. You are always within a social context of thought. Uh, you, you know, there's no free agent when it comes to consideration of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, Nietzsche, Nietzsche's phrasing of this is, uh, there's no God's eye view. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no true objective view of the world. Everything is processed through a relation. 
Very interesting. Uh, page seven, right after that, quote, real life works something like a massively multiplayer game. <laughs> and then right after that, quote, all learning is, I would argue, learning to play the game. Mm-hmm. And, and so this happens a few times in the book. Uh, the human mind is claimed to be similarly structured to a game. Mm-hmm. That uh, the things that games have you do and the things that just interacting with the world have you do operate the same way. Now, I think there's a lot of thinking about that that we have to do here. Uh, if only because, uh, you know, if I play Mass Effect, I don't know why that's my example, but there are truly a finite th- number of things I can do. There are only so many affordances that the thing op- offers. Mm-hmm. That is not true to human life. You know, I could I could walk out of the room right now, burn the social security card, get on a train. <laughs> mm-hmm. No one knows where I'm going. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's not true. Unfortunately, you can't go off the grid in Mass Effect. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so that's another thing here. And so all of these are claims that are baseline in the book that that we do need to flag because the assumptions that are here are important because they inform the rest of the book. The last one uh, before we move through the book proper here is one I've, uh, I have uh, referenced earlier. It's on page 12 quote technologies do not have any effects, good or bad all by themselves. Mm-hmm. This is the social construction of technology, right? The idea that a pencil is a pencil, a printing press is a printing, a printing press. They have no value in and of themselves. I would point out that this is also the argument that a gun has no value in and of itself. This is the exact same argument that gets made there. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm not saying that to politicize this claim, but I think in different domains, right, right. in different semiotic domains, you have to think about the way that your rhetorical argument works. Mm-hmm. I think there's a much more nuanced take on this um, that is much more present in technology studies broadly and in media studies, which is that different technologies have different affordances. Mm-hmm. They have different outputs that are more or less likely. Uh, and because of that, you have to think about them as political objects, mm-hmm. right? They... Um, technologies have to be used to do something. I think he's right, but some technologies are easier to use than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of Videodrome, it's pretty hard for me to use a VHS tape uh, to uh, you know exert force on someone else. Right. Uh, it's very easy to do that with a gun or a knife. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I think we do. You know, this is not. This is Langdon. Uh, you know, I don't know how you say it. Winner, Weiner. I, I don't know how you I'm say. Not sure. It. Uh, you, you know, the whale in the reactor, all that kind of stuff. This is technology studies way back, mm-hmm. you know, in the 70s and 80s uh, and into the 90s. Um, and G is not interested in that. G is interested in, in language and learning and uh, semiotic studies. And I would say the, the theory of technology here, the theory of media, theory of media here is not up to 2003. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, I, I think this is a pretty flat uh, understanding of that. So, sorry again to monologue for a very long time, but those are assumptions in the intro that you have to hold on to uh, because they inform the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, Michael, where do you go from now? I'm sorry that I keep talking for extended amounts of time. Uh, I, another move, actually, that I want to pull out of the intro uh, mm. because I mentioned it uh, obliquely because I thought you had actually written about it later, but you put it really well, and this is, uh, you have it in your note for page 10, uh, but uh, mm-hmm. one of the other things that G do, uh, does and this is related to the talk about like this is what a good video game does X right it's it's that kind of talk. Um, there's a a slippage that will often happen where uh, what G thinks of as a good video game is also taken to be a glimmer of potential for like the future of video games. 
So uh, there, there's a kind of extrapolative move where like something good becomes a portent of something even better in the future, uh, uh, sort of wholesale. Um, and one of the things that uh, this means for the overall argument is that the arguments about video games are constantly kind of waffling between video games that actually exist right now and what video games may be like in the future. Uh, mm-hmm. and it can, th- those things c- can be made to run into each other, uh, very smoothly in a way that historically just hasn't worked out. Like th- no, no, pr- uh, yeah. no prediction of games as service here, for instance. <laughs> oh, right. No prediction. Uh, and which is fine. Like you can't, you know, expect someone to pr- predict the world, but it's interesting where potential gets used to paper over complication. Mm-hmm. Um, where reality is that uh, capitalism exists and <laughs> video games are a uh, product of a, a you know a capitalist economy. They exist really well within it, uh, and they are very good at eating potential and turning them into profit mm-hmm. uh, and turning it into profit. Uh, no, I mean, I made a lot of notes in here. Probably I won't bring them up too much past this point, but I made a lot of notes in this book where potential and speculation both exist kind of concurrently with one another to let G make some arguments that are not supported by the games that he's reading. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's fascinating to me. I'm, I'm working on a piece right now very slowly. Darshana and I are working on a piece uh, that's about the history of speculation in games and particularly the kind of lay of the land of speculation. Um, what happens when, you know, um, games have talked about or game studies has talked about speculation and thinking about it. This has got to go right in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this whole book only works because you can speculate. Um, games might be different than they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, lo and behold, Ubisoft happened and uh, League of Legends happened mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Fortnite happened. Right. Yeah. Like. Uh, and all of those space. things have distinct affinity groups. Boom. Chapter two. Finally. Uh, so I've already said uh, chapter two is about semiotic domains, which is, uh, you know, the 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 space, not a literal space, although I suppose it can be. But, uh, you know, the 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 social category or grouping that means that certain things mean certain things to you. Uh, uh, games, Twitter, for instance. Right. Film Twitter. Uh, but then also uh Within those kind of domains, you have affinity groups. Uh, so people who are interested, like not necessarily interested in one another, but um, or even friendly with one another. But uh, uh, one of the examples that G ends up talking about are like people who post on the same forums or blogs like trading EverQuest tips, right? EverQuest guilds are, are a kind of affinity group. Um mm-hmm. So these people like come up with uh, their own vocabulary, their own terms for how to play the game, what it means when they're talking about playing the game, what are kind of uh, appropriate social practices and things like that. Uh, And these are all things that you learn by flailing around and figuring it out and internalizing the rules. Uh, Again, as you pointed out, Cameron, much like the way that you often flail around and figure out the rules of an actual game. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this also eventually gets us to uh, G's idea of the design grammar, um, which is kind of like the the internal logic of the thing. Like, 
<laughs> like uh, uh, the example, the the reading here is of uh, G's son playing Pikmin. And so, for instance, like figuring out that different colors of Pikmin have uh, different abilities, right? All Pikmin are generally the same, but different colors of different Pikmin have uh, uh, slightly different capabilities that you can then exploit. Um and uh, how do you figure that out? And then what do you do with that information once you have it? Right. Yeah. And, you know, this is part of a long lineage of uh, video game studies work and actually video game design work that conceives of uh, video games. The, the work of video games as a language, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, so. Uh, uh, Naomi Clark and Anne Anthropy, their their textbook, their video, their game design textbook, I think it's called the uh, Vocabulary of Video Games. Uh, uh, I've I've taught it. Yeah. I just don't know. No, they they have the game design vocabulary. Yeah. yeah. Yes, a uh, game design vocabulary is the name of that, and you know it very much leans into. Uh, a common set of languages or, you know, something you see everywhere. You know, you can go back to Kostikian, um, you know, giving that speech and then writing the piece of, uh, you know, I have no language and I must design, mm -hmm. which is to say that uh, in order to be better designers, I mean, his argument in that piece was in order to be better designers, we actually need words for the things we're doing in a shared language. That's not just kind of studio or project specific. Um, and then after that, you know, lots of people went into uh, game design concepts as verbs and nouns, right? Like the things you do are the verbs and the things that are operated on are nouns. And that's helpful. And then a game design vocabulary really builds out a whole system of game design for that. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a quite interesting uh, book. But you, so you see part of that here, right? There, There is a, I think, latent within game studies broadly, there is a uh, idea that uh, gr that there's a grammar to all of this, right? It all fits together like a language does. Um, and uh, it's just interesting to see that here. I've written about grammar in games. I, I've written, um, weirdly enough, uh, uh, in conversation with the Horton Spillinger's notion of grammar, right, to talk about race. Um, it's, in, it's in my book. Uh, and I've got another piece coming out that's in conversation with that. And I've always just missed this. Um, and weirdly enough, design grammar kind of shows up here and I think falls out for the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, it pops up, but it's not a key term as much anywhere else. And so I really want to fold this back in. It's really interesting. But this is also where we start getting the learning principles mm -hmm. that are in the book. Uh, I don't... What do you think about this? Uh, because this we haven't even talked about this. This yeah. is like a substructure of the book mm -hmm. about learning principles. Um... So, yeah, there are, there are like learning principles that come at the end of uh, many chapters. In total, I believe there are 36 of them, uh, and they're just kind of listed. So I'm just going to read these off for you here from the end of chapter two. One, active critical learning principle. All aspects of the learning environments, including the ways in which the semiotic domain is designed and presented, are set up to encourage active and critical, not passive learning. Two, design principle. Learning about and coming to appreciate design and design principles is core to the learning experience. Three, semiotic principle. Learning about and coming to appreciate interrelations within and across multiple sign systems, images, words, actions, symbols, artifacts, etc., as a complex system is core to the learning experience. Four, semiotic domains principle. Learning involves mastering at some level semiotic domains and being able to participate at some level in the affinity group or groups connected to them. 5. Meta-level thinking about semiotic domains principle. Learning involves active and critical thinking about the relationships of the semiotic domain being learned to other semiotic domains. Okay. 
I don't know what to do with these. I mean, I, I like <laughs> these all are things that make sense. Um, but at the end, when we have 36 of them, that's quite a quite a few. It is a lot. That's a lot of principles. Like, <laughs> I mean, literally, they're just they're frustrating because on one level, you could read this. And I, I, I don't, you know, when you was uh, at the end, there's an appendix and they're all listed out. Mm-hmm. And I think it is reasonable to say, all right, well, when you to make a good game, you just do as many of these as you can. Yeah. Because that's what G is saying. Yes. But also G is constantly throughout here being like, that's not exactly what I'm saying. That's mm-hmm. not exactly what I mean. Which, but without really filling in the information. Well, and it's fuzzy because it's like, are are these principles that you follow through to make a good game, or are they principles you follow through on to make a good classroom experience? Both, right? Like that's the thing. Are, yeah, they're they, the same, right? They are just agnostic to use condition, right? Like, uh, as long as you create, you know, this is this is one from the next chapter, but a psychosocial moratorium. Right, that's mm-hmm. number six. Learners can take risk in a space where real world consequences are lowered. Right, as long as you do that, you're doing good learning. Mm-hmm. Right, if it's in a good, if if it's in a game, good on you. If it's in the science classroom, even better. Mm-hmm. You know, there's if, it feels like there's a lot of other values that are plugged into that, though. Right, <laughs> uh, am I playing a game that encourages me to commit hate crimes, which will show up later in the book? Mm-hmm. Well, that to me sounds like there's a lot of different stakes to having no real world consequences. Right, mm-hmm. uh, and what is a real world consequence? Right. Uh, does that get flagged by your ISP that you're like going on to like a, a hate recruitment website and playing a video game? Right. That seems to be a real world consequence. Um, <sighs> do other people know about it? Does it show up in your steam friends list? Mm-hmm. All this other stuff. Anyway, you know, I don't know. I think probably people print this out and went and designed games with these 36 lessons. And, uh, I think there's a lot more kind of proof into how they work or don't work, mm-hmm. uh, that I would like to hear. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I also think it eventually uh, starts influencing uh, mainstream games as well, because I think uh, once we get into, well, maybe this maybe this will start getting us there with chapter three about role playing, taking on identities. Right. Uh, uh, I think you start seeing uh, some of the claims that G makes about like meta reflection uh, get mm-hmm. reflected in mainstream games, probably from about the middle of the, the 2000s onward. Uh, but yes, chapter three, learning an identity. What does it mean to be a half elf? This is, uh, uh, the, the, the core text here that G is reading is Arcanum, uh, in which he role plays as a, uh, female half elf named bead 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 the half elf, uh, <laughs> our savior bead bead. It's such a good name. It, it's great. Uh, and I want to play games with James Paul G. Yeah, uh, Twitch channel where James Paul G plays video games. In <laughs> uh, this, the, one of the things that happens in this chapter is he basically like develops his own theory of role playing and like what it means to role play in a video game. Uh, and there are like three parts to this. One is the virtual identity, uh, which is uh, the character that you play. So James Paul G plays the character Bead Bead. Uh, then there's the real world identity who is James Paul G who is playing Bead Bead. And then this is the core part, um, the projective identity, which describes the relationship real world player James Paul G has with uh, virtual identity Bead Bead. Right. Um, and one of the things that uh, G says is that uh, you you need this. 
apparently like uh, uh that video games um give you some form of projective identity that you uh are aspiring toward or slotting yourself into and that's what produces like the identification with your player avatar uh, and he talks through like his experience playing arcanum and trying to decide like what sort of person is bead bead going to be uh she has a party member who like uh I think uh, uh, scolds her for pickpocketing people. And so she stops pickpocketing people because she doesn't want to be scolded unless that party member isn't around or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's kind of that angle, which I think is, is fair enough. Um, But then the way that this gets transferred to learning, I think is, is another kind of interesting move where uh, he says something to the degree that like, basically for instance, uh, students working on science projects uh, are going to do better if they can have a projective identity wherein they are imagining themselves as a scientist, as a real scientist, either in the future as part of a tra- uh, career trajectory or like just for the the sake of role playing, I guess, in the moment. Um, and I don't know if I agree with that. Mm, say more. Uh I don't think everything that you do has to pivot on whether or not you have a projective identity about that thing. Like if you're going to like, especially learning. And I think, uh, did you mark this in your notes? Cause I wrote a uh, uh, fairly streamlined notes here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, I believe this is also the chapter where race comes up for the first time pretty strongly where uh, uh, basically he says one of the problems with um, black students is that they are uh, not inclined or not being uh, given the opportunity to foster projective identities with uh, future careers. Mm hmm. Right. This is the like that's that's the reason is that uh, black students can't imagine like can't or like aren't being allowed to imagine themselves as successful scientists and therefore they perform po- more poorly in science courses. Right. So they're kind of the argument that representation matters because it gives you a projective kind of uh, thought, right? Mm-hmm. Um, seeing more people who are like you doing the thing you want to do produces more people who can do that, can see themselves as doing that. Um, and he is this the chapter where he embeds that in the like uh, class discourse? Yes. That, like quote, quote unquote, lower class workers see themselves as insufficient to mm-hmm. higher class jobs, mm-hmm. right? So, so it's basically... Uh, the 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 realm of projective identity has to do with um, uh, only if you can imagine yourself doing the thing, is it possible to do the thing? And without seeing the thing, you can't imagine it. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, is the the claim here. Yeah, which really makes you wonder. You know, the question is, well, what about the people who were the first to do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, are are they like unique, like special human beings, right? Who yeah. like whose power of speculation is so powerful that they can overcome? You know, uh, what I just I feel like there are some like missing links here in this argument that I'd be very curious about how the literature mm-hmm. addresses. Again, I will never know that because of the citation method. Yeah. But well, um, and I just think obviously it, this is true. But, yeah. you know, what is the quality to it? And it's tied into like this. Um, It's tied into what's in, in the introduction, right? That being in the world is like being in a video game. Mm-hmm. You know, he says this on 54. Uh, quote, I was proud of Bead Bead at the end of the game in a way in which I have never been proud of a character in a novel or a movie. End quote. Mm-hmm. And, and the claim that's being made here, it's very similar to the Gordon Kalea book, right? That mm-hmm. uh, the experience itself, right? It, and um, uh, 
some of the stuff that Stefano Gualini has has written, right? Like the phenomenal experience itself gets to kind of uh, transcend domains, mm-hmm. right? Because the experience is experience. Mm-hmm. I completed the thing. I'm proud of bead bead. But the question is like, what are you what are you proud of, right? Like a video game, especially Arcanum, it's got very defined inputs and outputs. Uh, there's another way of phrasing this, which is I was very proud of the way that I manipulated all the buttons in sequential order to get to the end of the game. Mm-hmm. That's that's equally as true, mm-hmm. right? It, and it determines like the model you bring to the thing. Are you proud because you think you made a series of choices, right? That were qualitatively important that that put your projective identity of the character through all the challenges of the video games that you transcended, uh, or you know, think about it in a different way. If you're a speedrunner, uh, or just someone who thinks of games in a different way, it's just about the the sequence of button presses. Mm-hmm. That's that's all the game is, right? And so there's this whole layer of uh, semiotic domain, right? That's implied here, not discussed about, which is like, what are the actual things that are happening, and how do they plug into the thing that he is calling the semiotic domain? Mm-hmm. Um, you know. It's not about just projective identity for the students. It's also about the material processes that are going through it. Um, you know, uh, if if the material, if the architecture of the school is falling apart, right? Education social, he tells us that constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the school is falling apart, you're going to have worse outcomes. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just about projection. So... Uh, I, you know, I, I'm similarly skeptical as you are, right? That projective identity is really helpful um, in terms of thinking about, you know, the pragmatic issues of can you imagine yourself doing the thing? Obviously, it's got to be part of the component. Uh, it is not as heavy in my mind uh, as as some other things, maybe. But also, maybe I'm just wrong. I, yeah. You know, that, that could be true, too. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is the, the thing that matters. But again, this is the frustrating thing. I would like to be able to follow the citations. It's very hard to do that. <laughs> I'm never going to let it go. Mm-hmm. Chapter four, situated meaning and learning. What should you do after you have destroyed the global conspiracy? What, what should you do? You got to play Deus Ex <laughs> to learn about it. Old men running the world. Old men running the world. <laughs> and in the end, we'll have old men. <laughs> old men are the future. Old men are the future. <laughs> The Gep Gun. So yeah, this is the chapter about uh, Deus Ex, uh, which offers a kind of example for for G, in the sense that uh, Deus Ex is is famous for this type of thing. That when you encounter a situation in Deus Ex, like you know, here's your mission: like get to this place and do this thing. Work through, work your way through this space to get to the objective. Uh, there are multiple ways of doing that, uh, and so. The ways that you figure this out in Deus Ex are things like, well, I'm going to try to do like I have a character built for such a type of specialty. I'm going to try to do that. Oh, that didn't seem to work out this time or uh, my normal tactics of uh, that. The normal tactics that I would employ here uh, haven't been successful. I need to modify them, whatever. Uh, that there is a learning component to that of being able to know that everything that you do in a video game has a meaning in the context of that game. Um, that uh, uh, in some ways, how should we put this? Um, by being well, uh, uh, a little bit on what you're talking about, uh, uh, 
with the principle of being able to like try and fail, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Learning that certain tactics are most successful in certain situations, that knowledge uh, is not universal that like knowing how to do a thing in a certain situation does not mean that you know how to do that thing in another situation or if some variable changes the uh the the knowledge is literally situated like it is effective for a particular uh setup and a particular outcome um but it is also like not rigid you can uh improvise or like uh, render things malleable this is uh Part of one of the anecdotes he tells here is about like scurrying around with a rocket launcher trying to defeat a robot that he couldn't fight otherwise. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Yeah, uh, I'm not quite sure what to make here of the like. The J.C. Denton, the the character you play as in, in uh, Deus Ex, has a manipulable body that can be augmented. Mm-hmm. So then, therefore, it's an invitation. This is the language that's used, quote unquote, an invitation to embodied action. Mm-hmm. I, there, there's a metaphorism within the game that is then tried to apply to in a broader sense that I don't quite track. But but what you just said, I think, is like the appropriate uh, principle to extract from it. And and you use the word situated knowledge. Is does does he use the word situated knowledge? Oh, maybe he I don't doesn't. Remember. I just took situated. I I was mis uh, remembering situated meaning from the title. No, 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 it's, it's totally cool, it, but that's the thing that, that I kind of want to bring up, is that, or not kind of want to, I'm going to bring up, listen to <laughs> it, um, right, so that, you know, that's the Donna Haraway-ism, right, mm-hmm. like, you know, situated knowledge is very famous, that's what, 89, somewhere in there, late 80s, mm-hmm. early 90s, and uh, there's a long feminist history of this, like a very long feminist history of this, not here, mm-hmm. right? like, it's not, that's not the citational apparatus that we get here, and so, uh, immediately here, I was like, all right, well, if we're talking about embodied learning, uh-huh. there's like 40 years of, by 2003, there's a solid 40 years of work on that in philosophy and then in uh, women's studies, gender studies, you know, as that field, queer studies, mm-hmm. uh, as these fields differentiate from one another and kind of create their own different trajectories. And that is like blown out in terms of, uh, you know, uh, G's not interested in that. Mm-hmm. That's not the trajectory that you use to get or that he uses to get here. He uses the much more kind of uh, nebulous semiotic theory to get here. And so I was thinking about that the whole time. And and But you're right. I mean, the theory here, this is just uh, situated knowledge is reapproached, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the body, the physically um, uh, expanded knowledge base is the thing that matters. It's the site from which knowledge and understanding and learning are based. And you need to think about that, Mm -hmm. right? Like, uh, this is a book that's so concerned with the cultural context uh, and in the body, but not in the the other theorizations of these things. And again, look, that's not, that's a criticism that coming from the perspective of game studies and from my own perspective, that's maybe not an appropriate criticism in the sense that G is is, is a linguist, semiotician, coming from a very different trajectory, there could be a whole, you know, this is also a problem with the citational apparatus. That might be the the same thing that's happening in the citational apparatus, but I'm not going to go and read 40 things to determine that, mm-hmm. right? Which I wouldn't have to do uh, if this had a more traditional thing. So yeah. anyway, uh, that's all to say. One of the consequences in this chapter for uh, regular learning and teaching, and I think this is um, worth talking about too, uh, because there, the, there's a larger rhetorical kind of situation happening here where uh, G is constantly uh, offering a view of what learning and education can 
uh, or should be, or like what good learning is, that is opposed to a different type of learning uh, that has other kind of uh, rhetorical attachments to it. So uh, the the situated meaning and the embodied learning, that's the good stuff. That's like what games model really well for G, and it's something that he wants to see more of in the classroom, meaning that uh, his critique here is about uh, the what we mentioned earlier, the skill and drill kind of teaching where all you are doing is learning facts, uh, learning like sort of concrete processes and learning how to implement them uh, and just being able to like follow uh, directions and and do the thing. There's not a, a, a chance to like put your principles into action. So, uh, you know, G would rather have it that all learning is kind of embodied and experiential versus uh, a kind of rote memorization or what have you. Um, and this is just such a common critique in education at all points, like, <laughs> uh, that, uh, the current methods that we're using are too focused on, uh, things that like just, uh, uh, things that don't really teach you mastery that they just teach you kind of like brute facts. Uh, they don't teach you to do anything with them. They don't teach you how to be cre how to be creative with them, with them or how to produce new knowledge. You just learn a bunch of facts. Uh, and that's, that's what passes for education these days. Uh, and this is usually opposed to something about how we need to make learning uh, less obscure, right? This is the other thing is that uh, when students learn just facts, they're not actually learning anything because they're not learning the situations in which this knowledge is meaningful. They're just learning facts and they have no idea how these things really like relate to each other or might they might operate in the real world. Um, this is kind of the, the whole kind of little educational cosmology that that G is sketching here in 2003 uh, that we are hopefully moving toward or could move toward uh, more experiential embodied types of learning um, as opposed to uh, uh, skill and drill stuff. Uh, and this is what I threatened to do at the beginning of the show, where this oh, is an God. argument that was made 400 years ago about picture <laughs> books. Right. right. Uh, that well, it, well, and and even before you dive into that, I just want to say, I mean, think back to our episode on the ignorant schoolmaster, uh -huh. the, the Ranciere. I mean, that's three hundred years ago, mm -hmm. right? And that's the exact set of claims that are being made by uh, what Joseph Jacotat. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I almost <laughs> couldn't pull the name right. That uh, ultimately, as long as you can do something with it, you know, what I mean, someone who can't paint can teach painting. Mm -hmm. As long as you can do the thing. Um, you know, as long as you can speak the language, even if no one knows the language, you can get to a place where you can speak it together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> which is like, oh, you know, it's, it's still very funny to think back to that, but there's something going on there with education that, that application and expansion and the kind of uh, open approach to principles, mm -hmm. you can get there. So, so yeah, I'm very curious to hear what, what you're about to say, but I just want to say, even with our, within our own show, mm -hmm. we've already done another book that talks about this right? Uh, from a very different trajectory, right? From the French philosophical and historical perspective. But tell me about picture books from 400 years ago, Michael. Yeah. So I, and in contrast uh, to someone like Jacques Cotat, uh, I think here of um, Charles Houle, who wrote an introduction to uh, Orbis Sensualum Pictus, which was uh, the first uh, Latin textbook produced in Europe um, that had engravings in it, pictures. And uh, as you might expect, producing such a book was more costly because you had to track down uh, the woodcuts and like pay for the extra space in the pages and, and setting all this up. 
So it was, or it incurred a real expense. Uh, so for Charles Houle, this English schoolmaster who wanted to teach Latin with this illustrated textbook, he had to make a kind of defense of it. And his entire defense is happening in almost these exact same terms, uh, that the old method of teaching Latin, where you just had a series of words that you memorized and grammatical rules, uh, might have produced people who could produce sentences in Latin, but it didn't produce the understanding of the language and sort of the internalization of the Latin in the same way that Latin learned with a picture book could, because pictures uh, are representations of things that students already know from outside of the classroom, and that is going to help them understand more concretely uh, the language that they are learning. Uh, and the way that Houle uh, uh, articulates this and this is why I say it's like a, a kind of in contrast to Jacotot is uh, he says that we must apply, we being the schoolmasters must apply ourselves to their reach. So uh, he, uh, in contrast to Jacotot very much has this idea that like schoolmasters contain knowledge. Uh, students are deficient, uh, not, you know, uh, uh, forever, but like they're deficient in the sense that like they do not have the knowledge in them that we have in us. And our job as schoolmasters is to take the knowledge that we have and get them to embody it. Right. We need to get them to internalize that. Um, and one of the ways that we can do this is by appealing to their bodies more so than prior regimes of education have done. And we can do this through new media. Like, obviously, he's not calling these new media, but that's what's happening here, right? As he is saying that there is a, a sort of innovation in our representational technology that provides us uh, with a way of getting at, uh, and this is the great irony of it, right? Uh, before we just had text, now we have text and image. Before we just had representation linguistically, now we have visual and linguistic representation. Uh, and somehow, by adding an additional representation or additional layer of representation to the thing, we are getting closer to the student's actual experience. Um, and that's going to help us in the long run get them to internalize and learn Latin. Uh, and that's I'm not leveraging this as like some sort of critique about G, but it's uh, uh, when you're in this line of work, uh, one of the things you start to wonder after you run into things like this is what does it mean that uh, th these are obviously also very different arguments or like very different contexts. But what does it mean that the rhetorical sides are so similar and that it seems like this same conversation keeps happening? Right. And uh, I mean, look, it's the it's actually what we talked about uh, with the uh, uh, Mukherjee book, right? Story. I'm forgetting the title. Storytelling and video games. I don't mm -hmm. have it video games and storytelling, but I think. Video games and storytelling. Uh, the What we did last month, right, is the, the primacy of immediacy, mm -hmm. right? That This is the Derridian question about not to not to go full Derrida on the on the thing. Right. But uh, uh, Mukherjee brings this up. Right. The. Uh, Derrida's criticism is that orality has always been associated with immediacy mm -hmm. and writing has always been associated with deferment. And in fact, they are uh, co-pollutant with one another, right? Writing structures speech and speech is is within writing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it summons up in the immediate moment um, uh, anything, you know, kind of thing. They, they are not uh, binarisms with one another. And so really the question is, I think if we do the Doridian move and if we do the Mukherjee move onto, uh, the G is that how, how does experience get prepackaged? Mm -hmm. Uh, cause to me, right. I mean, this is the, the, the real kind of friction here. 
Video game experience in Deus Ex is not the same thing as experience in the real world. Mm -hmm. Meaning that if you put me, you know, just pulling it out of my own life, right? If you put me out in my yard and say, all right, uh, you need to uh, plant a tree, which I've been doing a lot over the past few weeks, plant a lot of trees. The degrees of freedom to that and the amount of sets of knowledges that I have to develop in order to figure out where the best place to put the tree is, is a research load. Right. And it's a research load that comes from a lot of different places, partially my experience. Right. I got to go stand out and look where the sun goes. I got to go like check out the soil. Like I do all this kind of experimental procedure in order to determine where I think the best place to put the tree is. And then there's aesthetics on that, too, which is like a whole other thing. Right. Uh, again, this is actually this is what uh, G calls an appreciative system. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so there's language for this already. Whereas in Deus Ex, there are a lot of degrees of freedom that one can have in Deus Ex in terms of what you do, but also the outputs are very finite. There are three endings to the game. Mm -hmm. There are a very finite number of ways you can even interact with the game. Even if I went to every, every enemy in every level in a different order, I could do that, right? That's like humanly possible. I can't plant a tree in every possible position to plant a tree in my yard. <laughs> like that's humanly impossible. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's this this interesting thing where the the uh, I think the Derridian pressure is actually maybe really important to think about when it comes to how is experience packaged in a video game and how is the language of experience in terms of its immediate accessibility. Right. I'm doing things and therefore I'm having novel experiences that are ultimately embodied and in positive in G's assumption. Well, what is the quality of that experience? How preformed is it? How um, pre-designed is that, right? Is it really as free as we want it to be? And, I, and again, like I'm not, much like you are, I'm not leveraging that as a criticism, but it's a question that if you push on it, might actually give us things that are quite a bit more interesting to learn about the games. Mm -hmm. And look, I'm, I'm cheating a little bit because we also have that book already. It's called Ready Player Two. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, it, and you know what I mean? Shirachess did that. That's what that book is. It is a kind of radicalization of the question of what is happening here in chapter four. But I think it's really important to kind of push on. And and ultimately, the question or the 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 question and the answer here is much more complicated than than G gives it. But this is an interesting starting point. This ends with the section we already talked about about game books uh, that is fascinating. But I think G is so wrong on this issue that maybe I don't I'm not interested in getting too into it. <laughs> yeah. Well, now that you've brought it up. Yes, I agree. I, I you know, G basically says like, hey, boomers. Mm hmm. You, th you think a book is a thing you read to learn about something? You can't even understand a video game instruction manual without playing the game first. <laughs> and I want to say, like, I mean, two immediate responses. Number one, I read the book regularly as a child before playing the game. And uh, it always was informative mm -hmm. to how you played the game. Uh, you know, I don't know how else I was supposed to figure out how to play Armored Core 2 Another Age on the PlayStation 2. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jesus. Uh, two, video game books have all kinds of narrative shit that just wasn't in the game. Uh, you know, read The Legend of Zelda little book, and you're going to learn a lot mm -hmm. <laughs> of context that's necessary. And also, the other thing is, like, third point, not, not, to, not to drive it home too much, but, like, the book is a part of the game. Mm -hmm. they, are, they are a mutually constitutive object. As we've learned they in Fallout. Thing. As we have learned in Fallout. Exactly. Like as Fallout humor comes from the manual. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Darius, for pointing that out. Because we spent like the first two seasons of Too Much Future being like, where the hell does Fallout humor come from? 
Turns out it was all in those games manuals. Yeah. Critical thing. And also in the Fallout Bible, a thing that was only accessible to like 5% of the player base. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So, complicated chapter. I think people can go back to this and do a lot with it. Uh, but probably not just adopting it whole hog. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapter five, telling and doing. Why doesn't Lara Croft obey Professor Von Croy? Uh, this is basically uh, a, not a, not not very wide ranging, but a a, a kind of diverse uh, investigation of different forms that tutorial levels can take, and particularly. Um, how can to, uh, the the central example, or rather the starting example, which is like the fourth Tomb Raider game or something? Not the first one. Um, uh, I, uh, third or fourth. Third or fourth, yeah. yeah. Uh, being one where you're playing Lara Croft, and it's like a flashback to early in her career, and she's hanging out with Von Croy, who's apparently the guy who like was her mentor or whatever. And... Uh, very expectedly, like that opening of that game has you like following him through a temple and uh, he tells you to do things and then you do them. And that's how it tutorializes. And one of the things that G thinks is really interesting is how uh, there are things that you can do uh, with that tutorial, like little treasures you can find and secrets and so on um, that you will only find if you either directly disobey the tutorial or like fail in doing it. Like you miss a jump and then you fall into a, uh, another area and you find a little bit of treasure down there or something. Um, and so that's really interesting to, to G is uh, sort of how do games teach you um, in kind of both explicit but also sort of implicit ways? Like how, how does the thing tell you what to do and then how do you figure out how to do it? Um, but then how does it tell you to do things that like lead you to discover other things you can do that the game is not explicitly telling you through a tutorial prompt? You're, you're finding it out because you have been led to uh, stumble into the secret treasure room or whatever. And from that point forward, you know that anytime the game tells me to do something, uh, it might be worth investigating my options before I follow that specific instruction because there may be an alternative that's going to get me something extra. Uh, and also that, like, it's actually fascinating to me that, uh, Psycho Mantis doesn't show up here in this chapter. Yeah, he did play Metal Gear Solid, so. Yeah. Uh, and spoils Metal Gear Solid out the gate. Mm-hmm. You know, his brother, Liquid Snake. <laughs> brother! Like, doesn't even, uh, understand that that was, like, a plot twist, or, like, doesn't appear to. <laughs> nope. Uh... Big boss, inheritor of the genes. Um, but yeah, I, th this is weirdly enough the chapter where like an argument is stated at the beginning, which is like, hey, isn't it interesting when tutorials, when the game tells you what to do? Mm -hmm. Like what happens when you learn, but you also learn as the character? Like Laura Croft is learning at the same time as you're learning how to hit the jump button or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it just plays through that exact scenario and like, three games four games yeah he like talks about system shock 2 and i expected he yeah. was going to talk about how the tutorial character in system shock 2 turns out to be the villain and you've been listening to the vi like you've been tutorialized by the villain this entire time but he either didn't get that far or didn't think it was interesting yeah it's just it's a fascinating kind of thing of this is the only chapter i think that doesn't go anywhere mm -hmm. it's just like a proof of of the same thing with three examples mm-hmm um, but yeah, I didn't find this very interesting. Um, it, but I will say if you want to write about psychomantis, 
great chapter to talk about. Mm-hmm. You've been playing Suikoden. Uh, chapter six. Tell me about Jowie. I don't know if that's what he says, but. Cultural models. Do you want to be the blue Sonic or the dark Sonic? Mm. Yep. That's it. That's the ultimate choice. Yeah, this is this is the chapter where I was like, where is history? Mm-hmm. Uh, because cultural models here, uh, you know, he's got a lot of key terms. And I will say this is a book that's probably pretty good if you're looking for some key terms to pull out and then do stuff with. I imagine this book, I've never taught it. I know it is taught. Uh, I've never taught it, but I imagine it probably teaches pretty well. But uh, 149, cultural models, they are, quote, images, storylines, principles, or metaphors that capture what a particular group finds normal or typical in regard to a given phenomenon, mm-hmm. end quote. All right, so cultural models is just like your the kind of schema through which you approach the world, what you think is good, bad, moral, immoral, that kind of thing. Again, the word ideology is not used in this book, yep. uh, but, you know, th- this is ideology. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what is your imaginary relation to real relations, uh, and within the culture you live in? Well, and what's the shared version of it? That's your cultural model. Uh, I will say that when he makes these like big terms, uh, I I kind of went down a rabbit hole trying to think about this, and I didn't get anywhere. So best not to think about it too hard. But images, storylines, principles, or metaphors. Mm-hmm. What 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 is those don't describe different domains? They're not, you know what I mean? It's not like words, images, mm-hmm. simulation. You know what I mean, right? Like those would be different domains, right? right? Actually, those would be like different media types. But I don't know what unifies images, storylines, principles, or metaphors. What is the relationship between a principle and a metaphor? Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, mm. it's just those are just some words. Mm-hmm. Anyway, a lot of stuff. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot of stuff. And explicitly in the paragraph afterward, he's like, look, defining a cultural model is hard. Yeah. <laughs> and because they're invisible, it's even really hard to do that. Again, just want to point out, if you use the word ideology, you got, you know, I don't know, 60 years of people doing really hard work to describe ideology and give you some schematics for thinking about it. If maybe you dipped into cultural studies, you know, for someone who's looking to take this book and do something else with it. If you dip into cultural studies, you get a lot of people who are trying to figure that out, who are literally creating schema mm-hmm. in order to map out ideology. You can get a whole square. You know what I mean? Yeah. You got you to you go to our buddy Fred, <laughs> and you can get a you can get Grimus's square. <laughs> you can figure out what the hidden term is. Find it's the like hidden old term for extra points. We should do that. Uh, this is my idea. Don't take it. Hopefully no one's written this yet, but we should write about the Grimus square as a game. Oh, that would be good. That would be. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a fun little game. Mm-hmm. We should also kickstart that game. <laughs> it's just tricking people into making a crime of square yes. and finding the hidden fourth turn. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> the negation of negation. Uh, but yeah, so uh, this but this is the chapter. Sorry, where I, I was like, where's history here? Mm-hmm. Uh, because this starts with Medal of Honor and kind of talks about the relationship between Medal of Honor and Saving Private Ryan that Medal of Honor as a video game franchise, and, and it's actually Allied Assault, I think, that gets uh, cited here, uh, that it, like, grabs the experience of World War II in a way that Saving Private Ryan only represents the, you know, World War II-ism. Mm-hmm. But that is radically ignoring the fact that Saving Private Ryan invents the, like, image regime 
that allows you to make sense of Medal of Honor as a war game. Yes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it and like it it's it's just like in terms of how does our image culture work, this is completely ass backwards <laughs> in terms of like sequencing. Right. Um you need like a mechanism to understand what an image is of that makes it sensible. Not to get all Ron Sierra on it, right? But there is a way that images help define what he calls the distribution of the sensible. Medal of Honor is recognized in that in the same way that if you play, you know, the most recent modern warfare games, right? Like they're Jack Ryanified. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they are 24ified. They there's this kind of uh mill spec uh contemporary thriller thing that those things are in deep conversation with that and that only kind of makes sense if you accept the idea that like any random dude can get out of any random car and be a secret agent who begins whipping ass and like invading someone's home. And that's totally cool. Mm-hmm. Like if you are not in that, and which has, you know, modern warfare, uh, the remake that came out last year, I guess um, some of the responses to that were like, why are you invading a civilian's home in, you know, in one of the opening levels of this game, this is like kind of fucked up, mm-hmm. like in a broad sense. Um, but it, it's totally of a piece of contemporary kind of mil- military style thriller stuff, secret agent thriller stuff in which that's wholly normalized, you know, kind of w- war on terror aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's quite literally an image regime in a political regime that that's in conversation with that normalizes gameplay value, mm-hmm. right? That creates that, you know, uh, Nick Capizzoli wrote about that for, I think for bullet points, um, and about like, what the hell's going on here? Uh, in a way that I think was pretty clarifying for some folks. But um, yeah, anyway, it's just to say, it's like this This begins in such a way that I was like, I don't I don't know if we're even on the same page as, as far as this is concerned, but um, did, did you want to play as Blue Sonic or the Dark Sonic? Uh, well, Dark Sonic is the hero too. Wow. That's what we learned. Mm-hmm. It's Sonic, Sonic Adventure 2 Battle. Mm-hmm. Am I getting that title right? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, and so the the inciting incident here for G is realizing that there's in Sonic Adventure 2 that there are two storylines that you can play as Sonic or you can play as Shadow the Hedgehog and that his six year old son, uh, when playing as Shadow, who is ostensibly the villain of the obvious hero Sonic's storyline, uh, the, the kid understands that, like, for this story, Shadow is the hero. Right. And so, like, the the values of these respective characters are uh, relative to their respective situations. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And, and that video games allow us to explore that in a way that maybe cinema does not. Right, exactly. And so the, the ultimate kind of um, uh, upshot of all this, right, uh, is that video games could put us into a situation where uh, we inhabit... Uh, either sequentially or in some alternating fashion, uh, two different perspectives with two different value systems. And then we get uh, put in a position where we can contrast those things and see how, uh, question mark, one is better than the other, uh, how they are both potentially good things or how one is something that we think is a good thing and one we think is a bad thing. Yeah, it it is... Uh... It is heightening the idea that a good villain is the hero of their own story mm-hmm. to the level of like good learning. Yes. Not only is that good storytelling, mm-hmm. like, you know, and this, this is a big quotation marks for me, but not only is that treated as good storytelling, that is treated as the height of learning, which is like you can get different 
cultural models, and then you can compare them, mm-hmm. right? This is going all the way back to the learning principles at the beginning. Uh, when you have this allows you to have that meta level discursive conversation, mm-hmm. right? How does this make the how does the game tell us about the way that Sonic does XYZ versus the way that Shadow does XYZ? Um, you know, I, I think you can find some similar claims, although much more qualified and maybe much more um I, I um yeah qualified and direct mm-hmm. maybe is what i would say in the kind of broader procedural rhetoric uh, and kind of ludology you know broad conversation mm-hmm. those are not the same thing but in both of those places you know i'm thinking gonzalo frasca's stuff on uh simulation mm-hmm. um and then uh bogus stuff right like both of those th- both of those places are places where you can see this happening and and also like most game studies post 2010 or so yeah everyone's got a position on this i would say yeah um, yeah, when I said earlier that I think the 2000s really starts to show the marks of some of the thinking that G is doing here. This is precisely what I was thinking about with like um, Bioshock or like Spec Ops The Line, the the famous video game move of that era of uh, getting you to do something and then being like, ah, you sucker, you fool. It turned out that you were being bad the whole time by doing what the game was telling you, right? The, the game was uh, <laughs> tutorializing you to evil and you didn't even realize it, you sheep. Uh, yes, I, I think uh, both, of, both of us are fairly negative on that move and on that game. If you want a much um, kinder and really nuanced and very smart take on it that is not immediately dismissible in the way that I think both of our reflexes are on this game, <laughs> Uh, Soraya Murray in on video games. We did that episode on that, but that that book has a really nice chapter on that on that game. Yeah, uh, that does a really good job of kind of clarifying the stakes and maybe making it more useful for people in a way that I think you and I, Michael, are just never gonna do. <laughs> like I just I have this gut check in my heart um, that keeps me from doing that. Mm-hmm. But but that the the claim is made smartly, and of course, uh, Brendan Kyo's book, um, Killing Is Harmless. Um, which is 10 years old now. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. That just that just happened. We just crossed the thing. Uh, what do you think about a teenager who tells his parents to fuck off, Michael? Uh, excuse me, it's F off <laughs> because the, the, the swear is censored in the book, which I found very endearing. I, I did. <sighs> the world is full. This is on page 151. The world is full of an endless array of ever-changing cultural models. For example... What do you think of a teenage child who tells his or her parents to F off? Perhaps you apply a model like normal teenagers rebel against their parents and other authority figures and are not too concerned. Perhaps you apply a model like normal children respect their parents and conclude the teenagers out of control. Who is to say what a normal or typical teenager is or does? Different cultural models hold different implications. And that's true. Mm-hmm. That's that's actual fact, uh, and and what a, uh, even though I am goofing on it a little bit, it's a good example, right? But because it's mm-hmm. a, in what G's doing is he's pointing at any moment of controversy, right? Any moment of social friction can be approached from many different angles. Do you want to be the Blue Sonic or or Shadow the Hedgehog, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you you can you can approach anything, and the value of games is it gives us uh, the ability to do comparison. Where he goes with this is pretty wild to me mm-hmm. because we talk about two things. One is a game that has showed up quite often in the books we've read from this era that I've never played and I found it on the internet. It's on my abandonware, the website for games that are currently like not being managed by someone. And it's called Under Ash. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, which is quite famous at the time. I think, think most people who are writing about video games in this kind of cultural way uh, approach it in the early 2000s. It is a game about being a Palestinian child uh, and being involved in war. Mm-hmm. And I download it. I'm going to play it. I'm going to find okay. out about it. That's a game that uh, yeah. I've never investigated, but um, you know, it often got gets talked about in terms of September 12th as well, the Gonzalo Frosca mm-hmm. game. Um, you know, as this kind of political usage of games. I'm going to find out. But that's interesting. But then G takes us to, um, and, and the idea behind that is right. Some people might say that's just a game about that's just propaganda. Some people might say it's a humanitarian call for action. Right. You know, about Mm -hmm. what's going on in the relationship between Israel and Palestine and uh, the entire conflict and where it stood in the the early 2000s. Your cultural model determines how you get there. Video games offer the capability to think through different cultural models. Okay, interesting. But then he takes it to a game called Ethnic Cleansing, created by a white supremacist organization. Mm hmm. And how would you feel about that? Um, not great. I I didn't appreciate the sort of like not exactly implied equivalence, but like this is the rhetorical move. Like we're going here's under ash. We're going to discuss it. Uh, going to touch you know briefly on like the the situation of Palestine and Israeli occupation. Uh, and then we follow it up with like white supremacist ethnic cleansing as a sort of counterpoint. Uh, uh, a a a an not obvious because it's not stated to be obvious, but like, again, the, the, the structure of the argument here suggests that there is a comparison to be made. I'm just going to read the paragraph. Mm-hmm. It's on 160. Quote, the same capacity that will allow us to enact new identities and learn to act according to new cultural models can also allow us to renew our hate or even learn new models of hate. In the end, who is to decide what identities you or, I, you or I can enact and whether enacting them will be a good or bad thing for us? Publicly, the issue usually is touched on in terms of children and teens, where parents surely bear a major responsibility, but the average video game player is in his or her late 20s or early 30s. I don't want politicians dictating what identities I can enact in a virtual world. At the same time, I worry about people who play ethnic cleansing. That's the title of the game. Uh, parenthetically. Back to G. But any attempt to stop the flow of identities that new technologies allow presents the danger of locking everyone into their most cherished identities, and that has brought us a great deal of death and destruction of its own. I have no solid answers to offer, only the claim that video games have the potential to raise many such questions and issues. End quote. Mm -hmm. Who's to say if playing ethnic cleansing is good or bad, Michael? If we don't have the, the flow of identities, then we might get locked into something. Right. And, and look, I, I, you know, I, in a broad sense, agree. Uh, I yeah. think you should be able to make art about literally anything. I think that's okay. I think probably no storefront should sell ethnic cleansing. I think we should boycott it, uh, you know, uh, for political reasons. I've never heard of this game before. You know, I think here, too, about uh, Armand Towns' piece that's really uh, interesting, reading the uh, Middle Passage game that turned slave ships into Tetris, like this kind of game of organizing the slave ship. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as a as a game of Tetris, and he kind of reads through the kind of cultural signifiers that are there, right? Like, um, and and the kind of massive error in judgment that <laughs> that happened, right? Mm-hmm. We're taking this kind of abstract system and applying it to a historical um, case, right? So, like, 
you know, people can make stuff. You know, I am not the arbiter of who can make or who cannot make. But it does seem like if you're going to pose this in the book, you might also want to pose like a theory of the relationship between ethics and games. Mm -hmm. Um, That seems to be like, should have been chapter 6.5, right? Like, what is the emanation of ethical systems into games? As opposed to like, hey, cultural models exist. Video games are a crucible in which cultural models get determined. I can't determine who can play this game or who cannot, but certainly isn't that interesting. I, I find that mm-hmm. non-compelling. And also probably where, uh, again, to, to to point out another system, where things like procedural rhetoric are really useful, right? Because mm-hmm. procedural rhetoric does give us a mechanism for at least working that out and parsing it out and analyzing it and talking about it. This is a place where Shira Chess's work is really helpful, right? For pointing out the ideological components to the thing and, and giving us an idea of how to connect up ideology critique to game analysis, right? Like mm-hmm. these two things for chess are, are combined. Uh, it's where Kashana Gray's work is really great too in intersectional tech of you can't talk about the way someone plays the game without talking about their location in the world and what their values are. That's what half of that book is, is laying out that system. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and even the town's work in uh, I, I, Black Media Theory, I think is the name of Armand Towns' book. That's what that's doing too, right? Uh, you know, what, do the, what does this method give us to understand our models and how are they actually full of content already, you know, um, mm-hmm. and full of judgment and full of ideas? Um, this is a place where the retreat from ideology, you know, from the notion, the, you know, the Marxist idea of ideology is really felt um, because it means G can't push this very far. He basically mm-hmm. pushes it to the marketplace of ideas. Yes, exactly. Right. There's a, a, a sense of like, well, like doors are open. We have to let people kind of like mill through and we can trust that the arc of history bends toward justice. Because this is also where he says, uh, Video games eventually, that's the word he uses, won't have combat. They won't have to have combat. Mm-hmm. Like, eventually they mm-hmm. will progress to a certain place. And it's like, well, uh, there, there's no talos to the human experience or to media. Um, and in fact, it's all about hegemonic dominations and subordinations, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, welcome to ideology. Um, yeah. And it's so, such a fascinating claim to, to make there because it's like, did, did people stop getting shot in movies? Like, what's going on? But No, yeah, it only became right? m- much more violent. Uh, in fact, it became sharper. I mean, good God, go watch a Western from 1935 and then go watch any given movie today. Go watch a Disney film today, you know, like a Marvel movie, and tell me mm-hmm. which one you think is more violent. Um, <laughs> you know, our mass culture now is, uh, our mass filmic culture is much more uh, happy with particular forms of violence. And like, whatever, I'm, I'm not judging that one way or the other, but like, to pretend as if... Uh, to pretend as if you don't need to come to some form of judgment in that in your analysis is like, you know, right. I don't know. Well, in that, like, media evolve out of violence or something. Right. Just like, what's the precedent for that? Right. And maybe it, the other way of reading the statement is like, they won't have to have violence. But also video mm-hmm. games in 2003 didn't have to have violence. In fact, they were coming out of a time period in which they probably were the least violent they had been for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, hard, hard to parse this. I'm not saying all this to belabor the point, but this is a place where when you start talking about cultural and cultural models and how they intersect with uh, the content of the video game, the video game is not separate from the real world. And like, weirdly enough, in his connecting the video game to the real world, right, that a video game allows you to think about, you know, the, the culture you live in and how it works, he has to saw off all these like real edges in the, in the way that video games are already political in order to get to this more kind of um, abstract 
principle about cultural models. Mm -hmm. So anyway, interesting chapter. I think you can do a lot with it. You got to bring it into conversation with other stuff. You want to talk about chapter seven, the social mind? Yeah, uh, this is just a chapter that's about how uh, lots of people, particularly kids, like to play games together online. Uh, and they then plug into a vast community of distributed knowledge of like experts who can help them with questions or people who can help them retrieve their corpses or people who, uh, can tell them how to solve technical issues or what cheat codes are, uh, uh, providing walkthroughs, so on and so forth. These are uh, affinity groups in his language from earlier, and they give rise to certain practices and traditions. Uh, and then, uh, kind of one of the apex points of this, one of the, the the really great uh, consequences for G is this uh, interview with a kid who builds his own Tony Hawk levels mm -hmm. um, and is really into it. The, the kid is uh, uh, super into his Tony Hawk levels. And for G, this is amazing uh, because this is the uh, for, for G, this is like an image of the desired outcome of the learning experience of all learning experiences, right? Uh, that uh, uh, in G's mind, the ideal outcome of a science course, a good science course, is that you become like this kid with his Tony Hawk maps, where instead of making Tony Hawk maps, you're just constantly devising your own experiments and then like trying to enact them or like share the results with people. And uh, uh, one of the kind of odd questions uh, is something like, you know, like, you know, what, why is it that we can't build classes that make kids feel the way about science that uh, this kid feels about his Tony Hawk maps? Right. Why can't we? Uh, maybe because they're extremely different outcomes. In reality, education is a lot more like a, a you know, a factory floor. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. in terms of what, what you're doing, you're producing someone. This is, I just taught a class on social reproduction theory for a whole semester. Uh, if there's one thing that those people are all in agreement on, it's that education is fundamentally about producing. They produce mm -hmm. as a subject. Um, and, and so it's kind of hard to think about how, how making science more like a Tony Hawk level doesn't just get number one. It seems very difficult to actually implement in a real way, um, you know, materially, but even if we get rid of that, Hard not to think about how it would be immediately subordinated to the other desires of education. Well, and here's the thing is that like what he is holding up as uh, apex good education. And he says this in, in as many words about the Tony Hawk kid. Right. Uh, is that this is this is a uh, 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 a child who has become uh, not just a consumer, but a producer. Yeah. So uh, a particular move in like the media culture of the past 20 something years that has been uh, uh, spurred along mainly because it's really good at uh, increasing effective invest investment and, uh, you know, enriching media industries, people who profit off of folks who are willing to take a thing that they didn't make that they really like and then uh, put their labor into it to improve it, change it, make it better uh, and by that token, bring a wider audience onto the floor. Right. More important that people be conversing and adding, less important to think about what the outcomes are there. Uh, conclusion. Uh, we already actually talked about the conclusion, really, in some ways. Yep. Uh, there's a big, long thing uh, that he goes on here about, like, the canon and canon wars, which is another thing that really marks it as an older book, uh, like, responding to 
all of the discussions that were being had in the late 80s and early 90s in uh, English literature studies about like the place of the canon and what do we do with the canon? Are we teaching the canon? Are we teaching the canon correctly? What are these people who are challenging the canon? Uh, that's there. And I think that's notable because uh, ultimately um, uh, G tries to position himself as a centrist, right? He says that uh, conservative uh, commentators or educators on the issue of the canon uh, say that it is good to have a stable series of texts or great books um, because that means everyone has kind of uh, been exposed to these same values and we need to expose people to these values to ensure that the values are propagated and uh, we're continuing to produce people who have a certain uh, uh, relationship to the world, popular culture, each other, so on and so forth. Um, uh, and specifically, like, in service of very particular identities and particular power structures. Then opposed to that, uh, uh, what G figures is kind of the left wing critics of the canon, the people who want to do away with the canon because it is just about, like from this perspective, simply about uh, subordinating or dominating people uh, to the words and actions and ideas of a bunch of, uh, you know, quote unquote, dead old white men. Mm-hmm. Um, and G says, well, actually, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And I can prove this by looking at a woman from the 19th century who was like the daughter of a a shoemaker or something. Um, Her name was Mary Smith, uh, who is described in some other book that he reads. I think it was actually a book that came up in um, uh, the Stuart Hall book. Yeah, The Intellectual Life of the British Working Classes by uh, Jonathan Rose. Uh, looking at, oh, maybe, yeah, the 18th and 19th century. And there's this woman named Mary Rose, yeah, a shoemaker's daughter, uh, who was apparently uh, quite well-read uh, and had lots of thoughts about authors like Shakespeare, John Dryden, um, and so on, uh, like Thomas Carlyle and whatnot. Uh, all that's great, uh, but then G is like, listen, if, like, the, the left-wing academics re the canon had their way uh she would never have been able to read these things or have this experience because you know people don't want these things to be taught whereas the right wing would have her read them but like be subordinate to them to like internalize only the most conservative values and clearly this woman who has written about how uh you know despite her poverty and her social position um cherished being able to read paradise lost and like you know getting to the position where she could do that and uh engage with that poetry and think about it and the questions that it asks and sort of develop um more resistant strategies of re- reading with regard to like whatever uh, uh extant power structure there might be um which i guess is uh all well and good uh, but just really simplifies what is happening when those two sides are debating the canon, even by like so cleanly dividing it into two sides, uh, I, I think is part of the issue there. Uh, and just what is at stake in thinking about literary study? Uh, and eventually this works into like a, a weird homology with video games. Uh, that makes a lot of hard claims about what Mary Smith, a woman who lived 200 years ago, was feeling and saying and doing when she was reading Shakespeare's plays. Mm-hmm. Um, quote, and this is from page 202. <clears throat> uh, 
Why did she read canonical works as empowering her humanity and rights to equality in a hierarchical society? It's because she identified herself with the characters and viewpoints in those books. She projected herself into them. She didn't distance herself from the hero because he was a male and a king in a Shakespeare play, however much she might have wanted and certainly deserved female heroes. Rather, she saw herself as projected into that powerful monarch. Perhaps sometimes when she read Shakespeare, she was a king, and other times a queen, just as in playing Arcanum, I can make my female hero, hero as strong as any male at melee, melee fighting. Perhaps sometimes when she read Shakespeare, she was not a traditional monarch at all, but a monarch shoemaker with the dignity and uh, the human worth of a monarch. Perhaps sometimes she was all these more at all these and more at once. Remember, she was not just taking on the life of a virtual character in the book or play, she was also projecting herself into that character, creating something that both she and Shakespeare made, neither of them alone. Um, uh, I could say a whole lot about this, but the one thing that I just want to zero in on is that uh, G is essentially saying that the ways that he has outlined projective identity working in video games just also happens to be the exact same way that Mary Smith was reading Shakespeare's plays 200 years before, which is just, you know, citation needed. You can't blow your mind. Sure. None of this is in the conclusion for the second edition. Wow. Not a single part of what you just said, which is why it is very helpful archaeological work. <laughs> because I'm the, glad. Yeah. yeah. The <laughs> likelihood of someone being able to read this is very low. I am I'm glad we uh discovered this because yes the uh this this conclusion just uh, as someone again who thinks about like the intellectual trajectory of uh English literary studies and like issues of the canon uh just leaves me wanting here. Yeah, there basically what's in the conclusion here it's only like 5 pages it sounds like uh maybe a little bit longer in your version. Uh mm -hmm. the conclusion literally is a summary of the book. If you wanted to just be like, hey, here's what this book is. You could give someone the summary. And it's mm -hmm. just, you know, a very high-level summary. And also there's a kind of implicit, which is throughout the book, but uh, an implicit endorsement of flow and Chicksack Me High's work. Um, yeah. And that's it. That's the end. Oh, okay. And here, here's actually the final paragraph. Let me read it. It's actually very funny. 219. Well, that's that. To be honest, I wrote this book because I was and am having so much fun and playing, enjoy playing video games and wanted, like so many gamers, to talk about them. In fact, it is a crucial learning principle that people learn best when they, are have, it, when they have an opportunity to talk and write about what they are learning. I may well have learned more by writing this book than anyone has by reading it. The end. Okay. I'm going to write the end of all of my books that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this was for me, really. <laughs> Yeah, it was more to, uh, so I could read uh, like a dozen books about ancient aliens. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, the, the conclusion of uh, the first edition is, is just very different. Uh, it is not surprising that many politicians, policymakers and their academic fellow travelers who think poor children should be content with schooling for service jobs don't like video games. They say that they don't like them because they are violent. But in reality, video games do violence to these people's notions of what makes learning powerful and schools good and fair. Damn. Well, I think this is a, uh, you know, it's not always when you read a classic in the field that you come out the other side thinking, hey, that's still worth engaging with. Uh, I do kind of think that I think this book still provides a lot of really great starting points. Uh, if only to talk about, you know, like here were the assumptions in game studies at the early part of this kind of wave, whatever, whatever wave you want to call it, 
of game studies. What would you think? Worth your time? Yeah, I I, I mean, it, it was worth my time to revisit it. Like I said, it was uh, critical for me when I did read it because it allowed me to start putting certain things together. Um, I think that if you are interested in basically any of the topics that you've discussed, it's worth reading uh, because it was so influential. And at the same time, this is one of those books that if you're going to bring it into a contemporary con- uh, conversation, uh, you need to do a whole lot of work to extend it or qualify it or, or build some sort of scaffolding um, just to overcome not just like sort of some of the methodological questions that we've had, uh, but quite truly the uh, vast differences in what is the normative video game now versus the time when G is writing. And what do those things do? Yeah, I think that this is a book that mostly gets cited as a, you know, video games have to do with literacy. G2007, or, you know, 2003, mm-hmm. depending on your version. Uh, I don't think that's a very responsible way to engage with this book. Um, mm-hmm. Because what you what you're signing yourself onto is a big apparatus that you might not agree with. But I do think that there's still a lot here in terms of helping people hone a particular claim about how we engage with games. I think that's great. Like I, I I think that using some of the key terms and discussing some of the key terms and criticizing some of the key terms is probably a really good engine for, you know, uh, talking about other things in games. I would not just drop a citation here and then go on with my life. Um, uh, because I think that many of the claims here are qualified claims. I would say they're qualified claims, and those qualifications are actually pretty important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, it's it's not like, you know, genre exists. Tom Apperley, you know, uh, where it's like, you know, that uh, Apperley's classic uh, thing on genre at this point is just like, hey, video game genres work differently than other types of genre. And we need to be attentive to that. You know, it's a very explanatory and really helpful piece in laying out a claim. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a claim and then a system and then the application of a system. And uh, I, there are parts of the system I would not want to align myself with explicitly. So, um, or that I would want to, uh, you know, develop a little bit more in order to ad- adopt it into my work. So uh, anyway, I think it was interesting. I'm glad to read it again. It's very helpful to read the again or read the book again as I'm working on a book that's about Ubisoft, you know, or about Assassin's Creed. Um, people love to talk about the open world stuff and how, you know, UI overload and all that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of that has to do with education and a lot of that has mm-hmm. to do with literacy. How do you read the world of Assassin's Creed? And so, um, pretty helpful for, to to kind of drive some of that work for me. So glad that I glad that I read it again. Mm-hmm. What are we doing next time, Michael? Well, next time we will be reading uh, Well Met Renaissance Fairs and the American Countercultural Counterculture by Rachel Lee Rubin. Yeah. Woo. Wild card. Wild card. Yeah. The, the time of books is ended. Now begins the January of wild cards. That's right. And just after a, that, we're just going to be reading George R.R. R. Martin's Wild Card series. That's, yeah, that's a slow transformation of the podcast into wild cards. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, we will be back in a month. We'll be back at the end of next month with that. You can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch in order to support the show. Uh, what do people get when they uh, when they go there, Michael? Well, uh, you can get access to the notes for this show, the notes that you and I write. I compile them together, and then I put them on a Google Drive, and there are now 
literally hundreds of pages of notes for everything that we have written, like from or everything that we've recorded from uh, the beginning of this show to right up to where you're listening to this. Uh, very often, I try to get the notes put up on the day that the episode drops. Sometimes it slips my mind, and for that, I'm sorry, but... Right now, you would probably have access to the notes that Cameron and I both made for this book. And if you give us a little bit more, uh, you can get all sorts of other goodies. Uh, the podcast feed for Too Much Future, the Fallout show uh, that Cameron and I do, uh, and also the Just King Things bonus episodes where we talk about uh, the adaptations of Stephen King works uh, in a bit more granular detail uh, uh, as a side project to talking about every Stephen King book in publication order in the main show. Uh, and at the higher tier, you can support us and get access to Homestuck Made This World bonus episodes, which is, of all the other shows, maybe with the exception of Too Much Future, is the one that rebounds most uh, frequently back into Game Studies Study Buddies stuff. Uh, I'll tell you, I was thinking about uh, Homestuck here, reading this book, thinking about affinity groups. Maybe that'll show up on a bonus episode in the future. Who knows? Wow. Uh, yeah, but you get all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, we, we produce quite a bit of content, uh, both for free and also behind the paywall. Uh, <clears throat> and of course, if you go to, if you're an Apple podcast listener, or if you're any kind of listener, you should give us five stars on whatever platform you're listening on. I think Spotify has ratings now. Give us that five stars. Make sure we rank up here. And the thing it helps us out a whole lot, we don't spread by any way other than word of mouth. We don't spend any money on advertising, anything like that. So giving us five stars legitimately helps us out, helps us sequence up. And if you leave a nice little review, uh, I'll read it. If you leave a five-star review, I, I, I'll read it on the show. Read a funny one. I, I might have read this. Did I read the, the one about the word Deridian already? Did I do that? I don't remember. This is from... QCJ, a couple other uh, letters and numbers there. This is starting to sound familiar. Okay, then maybe I've done that. I'll read it again. It's fun. The word Deridian sounds like it should be the demonym for a minor alien species from Star Trek. We are receiving a distress call from a Deridian freighter. Could be the cold open <laughs> of a TNG episode. I think I've read it before. That's still funny. This is from Upright Virgin. <laughs> We've read a I review of Say before. again. <laughs> Is this the, have, but have I read this one, which is, uh, what the heck? I love ska now. Now, whenever I boot up a video game, I think about how I'd rather be playing Lego racers. I don't remember. Maybe you did read that when I have, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, having a like explosion of memories now. I'm right. ska Lego racers. It's hard. It's hard to remember, but here's the thing. We might be running out of new reviews. You got to leave a funny five-star yeah. review so I can read it on the show. So please do that. On Apple Podcasts, figure out your login. No one ever knows their login for Apple Podcasts. Please jump on there, leaving that five stars so that I can read your review. Cool. Yeah, and until then, remember, folks, that the social is predicated on its exclusions.